two presenters on this process of the NHI before lunch, and then thereafter, we'll have other processes that we are doing in the day. May I, uh, therefore, in welcoming you, uh, thank you for continuously sending uh, messages to Honorable Fan Staden, who is recovering and his family is doing very well now from his report. We thank him for updating us and thanking you for keep on uh, sending messages of support to him and his family. Uh, may I then get to hear from Ms. Machalamba, those of us who have joined into this meeting who will then be recorded as being present in the meeting and the absent, those who have apologized if there are any. Good morning and thank you, Chair. Present is Dr. Lomo, Ms. Gela, Mr. Sokacha, Dr. Jacobs, Dr. Harvard, Ms. Wilson, Ms. Ishmael, Dr. Tembeguayo. Uh, I've received apologies from Mr. Van Staden, Mr. Sukers, and Mr. Imam Sheikh. Ms. Chirwa will join the meeting later, and Mr. Munyai will leave the meeting soon. He has a doctor's appointment. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Okay, thank you very much for that, Ms. Machalamba. If you can then help us by flighting the agenda for today. Honorable members, we have uh, from now uh, until we finish the discussion, a, pr- a presentation by Professor Van Den. Yerver is uh, a professor in VETS in a particular uh, discipline there. He will introduce himself. He has made a specific request to come in as a solo presenter to the NHI, on the NHI bill to the Pastoral Committee of Health. And uh, he will then be given the time to make a presentation. Uh, professor, you now are welcome to this portfolio committee. You have uh, uh, 45 minutes to make your presentation. Thereafter, uh, members will pose questions, uh, clarity-seeking questions, and then we will come back to you to clarify those questions. So your 45 minutes starts now. Hi, good morning, um, and thank you, Honourable Chair, and thank you very much for the um, invitation to present today. And this is uh, in addition to the submission that I've made, a sort of a detailed submission, which I've also provided to the Portfolio Committee on on National Health Insurance and and Health health Systems Reform. I'm going to share my screen. Um, So just um, please just indicate if you can't see this. I'm assuming this is visible to everybody. Yeah, if you could just make it on a slideshow, we can see it. But uh, is it? I put it in slideshow. Is it uh, showing properly? Seems uh, to be visible. Eh? It's not visible enough. It's not so well. Perfectly visible on my side, chair. Perfectly visible on my side. Okay, it's um, it's on full screen. Uh, so, is it? Uh, 
There's more content, it's not visible, please. It's showing okay. two, two slides, one adjacent to the other. Oh, okay, so I'm going to um, reshare. Let me just select the correct one. Okay, is that our full screen? There you are, yes. Okay, sorry, apologies for that. Okay, so so um, I'm presenting a, 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 a sort of a, a summary version um, with some additional comments from my report that I submitted uh, in, in, in February in 2009, sorry, in uh, 2019. And um, so a large part of what I'm going to cover is really um, uh, what I see as a range of, of concerns within the health system, as well as uh, as well as a sort of a, a critical review of the national health insurance bill and the reform proposals themselves, and uh, I think the uh, the ration and the the rationale for the proposals. So there's quite a lot to kind of go through in in three quarters of an hour, but I will uh, potentially stop at a particular point in case I've used up all of my time. And thereafter, uh, I've just got summary elements in the presentation which could potentially be read by the members if, uh, if required, if I don't quite get to them. So the... Um, So the first issue I just want to raise is some issues around terminology that I want to want to use, just to sort of clarify certain things that I, I think are important to the way I think about the pot potential problem. And sorry, I haven't fully introduced my background. My background is as, as a health econ in in health economics and finance. I've uh, worked extensively on health policy specifically. Um, I've uh, worked in uh, the Center for Health Policy at Wits University before, the Department of Finance um, prior to that, uh, the Industrial Development Corporation. I was part of the Malamud Committee of Inquiry, Commission of Inquiry into Medical Schemes in the 1990s, um, the, uh, as well as the Taylor Committee of Inquiry into Comprehensive Social Security. Um, and my chair is in uh, social security systems administration and management studies at the Vet School of Governance. Um, I've also been part of the uh, lead, uh, lead economist in the health market inquiry, um, was also instrumental in setting up the Council for Medical Schemes as the regulator for, for the uh, private system in South Africa, the medical scheme system. Uh, also been part of the pricing committee in the uh, National Department of Health. So that's, that's kind of my background. I'm an economist uh, by training, but also um, look at virtually the full spectrum of areas of policy and governance by virtue of the, my role within the School of Governance at WITS. So just to clarify some terminology that I'm using, I want to make a distinction between what I'd call a state health service and a public health service. Um, I think that this is quite important. It's the equivalent of saying, do we have a state broadcaster or do we have a public broadcaster? The distinction is quite important because uh, a public service does not, is meant to be, have its governance and its entire institutional framework structured so that it is responsive to the public and not to political office bearers in government or the executive of government, but is in fact accountable through the way in which its governance arrangements are organized to the, uh, to the public in general. 
And I think that this is an important distinction when we, when we do refer to anything that is part of a public health uh, structure or system. The um, next issue is I just want to sort of make a distinction between uh, what I'd call a system, service versus a system. I certainly look at the health uh, arrangements that we have in South Africa, the whole uni universal coverage model as a system, not as a particular service. So a service will, might potentially refer to uh, services on the ground and provider arrangements, um, but we're actually in many cases, in all instances, talking about a system and a system is many parts of an overall institutional framework. It's a very complex set of arrangements which involve laws, organizations, um, uh, public and private regulators, etc. They form part of a system and when a health system fails or succeeds, it's largely because of how those different components are being structured or relate to each other. Um, you do not, uh, health systems are very complex and are made up of many different moving parts with autonomous components to them that might be tied together through laws, through regulators, et cetera. And, um, and I think that this is, a, a, this is kind of an, imp an important feature, a, a aspect to understand because you do not create a system by placing it all within a single organization. It is always about how you basically continuously design a whole network of operations and relationships to make the system effective for the public. There's also the term national health insurance versus universal coverage. Uh, these terms have been used quite manipulatively in the South African sort of lexicon. National health insurance, um, as a term itself, is, uh, is, is not always uh, clearly utilized in many different countries. And I refer to that in my report. But universal health coverage refers to a system, not to a single model. So universal health coverage is effectively an objective, an outcome that you're seeking to achieve, which is to make sure that everybody has access to healthcare um, uh, and uh, a reasonable level of healthcare. A national health insurance mechanism is very often a modality, a, an approach to try to realize it. Now, national health insurance is just a misused term in that many people refer to quite a wide range of health systems uh, as national health insurance, and they do so incorrectly if you even want to use this terminology. But the point is, these are not equivalent terms. And in, to a large extent, South Africa actually has a very high degree of universal coverage overall in terms of ensuring that people have access to health services uh, across the income spectrums in South Africa. But there are significant imperfections in our universal coverage uh, model. The question really is, what is driving those imperfections? And are we actually focusing on those imperfections as we look at reforms going forward in South Africa? Uh, I think that this is really the central question facing all reform and all decision-making structures of government and society in South Africa is making sure that we, we laser focused on that as an objective rather than singularly focused on a particular uh, modality as if that somehow will give a rise to universal health coverage. And I'd certainly argue that many of the proposals are actually more destructive to universal health coverage than will advance that objective. Um, then there's also the terms national health insurance versus social health insurance. 
These terms are also completely misused in the South African lexicon as well. Um, social health insurance, national health insurance is a version of social health insurance. It's a socialized form of financing for, um, uh, for ensuring people have coverage. But the terms insurance that are used at the end of these terms is often very confusing to people because not all models are actually insurance as a, as a, as a particular mode. They might be providing insurance as an objective. In other words, everybody, uh, regardless of their need for healthcare, has access to services, and that's a kind of insurance in the way that an emergency medical service is an insurance mechanism um, uh, against, uh, uh, against uh, for, for needing health, emergency health services in a time of crisis. So insurance can be also confuse people's understanding of what we're referring to overall. Social health insurance is also often used for narrower versions of socialized health, insur socialized health insurance. And there are significant analyses of when you actually move toward using a social health insurance approach versus private health insurance. And it's typically that point of departure that is used for these terms. Private insurance can't cover many people for a number of structural reasons, can't cover everybody systematically in the case of healthcare. And so you end up socializing an aspect of insurance to ensure that you can have deeper coverage. And this can involve a wide range of, of insurance mechanisms, not necessarily a single payer mechanism um, uh, as well, but it incorporates, it can actually encapsulate the idea of a single payer as well. So this is uh, just an important sort of technical notion. There aren't hard and fast differences between these terms. Then there's an important aspect, which is incremental versus non-incremental policy change, which I think really does need to be understood in the South African context. Um, incremental change occurs in steady steps, is typically occurs in complex systems of which health systems are. So where you're dealing with incredible complexity, and I differentiate the term complexity with complicated. Complicated is still reducible to some sort of technical solution, but often when you refer to complexity, you're dealing with problems where you cannot actually, um, where it's not easy to, um, to rationally uh, uh, determine an outcome. There's a lot of uncertainty. So you're dealing with probabilities rather than certainties. So complexity, involves uh, um, multifaceted problems that very often uh, uh, can escape the capabilities of uh, public and private decision makers. Now, in healthcare, we're looking at complex systems and we're looking at complex problems. And so very often health systems reform tends to be incremental in nature, building from your current system toward a, uh, a future goal, eliminating systematically the most prominent problems that are facing the health system at any point in time. A non-incremental change, sometimes uh, you'll hear in, the, in populist language in South Africa, sort of radical changes when applied to a complex problem, usually end up in disaster. And, and, and very often they take the form of zero sum proposals. Somebody must lose for somebody to gain and they very often tie together with grievances that people try to uh, take advantage of. Uh, and, uh, but non-incremental reforms as a form of policy change uh, are very risky because they involve changes that result in unpredictable consequences for a country particularly when they're large. 
Now, one of the reasons why non-incremental reforms typically aren't successful is because there's the, you very quickly um, uh, you, you involve changes to the system that very quickly involve complications and complexities that escape the capabilities of government or any policymaker at any point in time. So very often, non-incremental reforms are avoided in complex uh, reform, but that doesn't mean that one doesn't look at stepwise adjustments from an institutional perspective at points in time. The question is, what is the rationale for those stepwise adjustments? So I think that I, I make this distinction. The NHI proposals as they have been framed are non-incremental in nature, um, in that an end point is actually proposed, which I will argue is, is virtually impossible to achieve as an end point. And the only incremental feature of the proposal is that it proposes that it might just phase it in toward that ultimate objective. And this is problematic because the institutional endpoint um, is, is potentially not achievable. And that can harm even our incremental movements toward that endpoint might hold severe risks for our health system, which we do have to understand. So I'm now going to uh, sort of... Uh, Another part of the, um, of the problem that I've seen in the, in the terminology and the, and the sort of uh, discussion on health systems reform in South Africa is this classification of terms and the so-called benchmarking of different countries, which has often been misused. So I, I'm just quoting straight from, uh, my, uh, from sections which uh, are included in my report from a particular article which deals with the classification of countries. And I'll just run through those very, very quickly because some of these countries are referred to often as if they're somehow a benchmark for what we're doing in South Africa. And I'm going to be very clear, they are not. So, um, so I'll just quote from here. While there is a wide consensus among the authors defining the NHI model as a single fund and single payer system with universal coverage, several countries name their health insurance schemes a or a national public institution or a specific national health program, national health insurance, regardless of the health financing system of the country. So for example, Israel names national health insurance, their country SHI, which is their country SHI model in, in one set of terminologies, which is based on a multi-insurance system. They call it national health insurance. Japan uses national health insurance to refer to one of two major types of health insurance schemes in the country, which targets the population not eligible for insurance provided by the employee in the context of an SHI model. Several African countries such as Ghana, Kenya or Tanzania have insurance schemes, which they call national health insurance. Nevertheless, these schemes are not universal as they cover only a small percentage of the population, mainly formal sector employees. And that's between 11 to 35% of their country. So these uses of the term NHRI have probably contributed to some confusion in the literature. And I wanna point out an unusual feature of South Africa's proposal. Because in many cases where, for instance, WHO tries to um, motivate for universal health coverage models, they're dealing with contexts where there are significant gaps in coverage. In other words, they are people with no access to healthcare. And so you're looking at, for instance, trying to raise or mobilize revenue to expand coverage for people who don't have coverage. And, you, and it is typically recommended that you use whatever means you can to improve the coverage. It's not a single payer scheme. It's any kind of scheme that can get people into coverage. Now, uh, the, what's 
different between that approach and what we're doing, what's being proposed in South Africa, is that the expansion of the model, of the state model that we've that is proposed, and it's a state health insurance scheme, not a public scheme, is being proposed to actually expand to cover an already covered group and therefore to raise taxes to cover an already covered group. And that's a very unusual feature of this particular proposal. And I'd say it's, I, I don't see an equivalent in any country around the world where that is the fundamental proposal. So the, uh, and I'll just sort of point out what I think is in, a, in an open democratic society, the way in which policy should be made. Now, this is a, is a kind of um, ideal framework, but it does give you the logical steps that are absolutely essential in, in any process, even if it, if it happens in a, in a relatively untidy way. So first, you, you identify what needs, what needs to change. Then you do an appraisal of policy change options. Then you look at an adoption process. And just to point out that the parliamentary process and a bill and those kinds of things are part of a policy adoption process. Then you implement. Um, and, uh, but when you implement, you then evaluate what's being implemented. And then you identify again what needs to change based on that evaluation. So the, there's two features of this cycle that involve learning. Uh, if you don't incorporate learning into your governmental policy processes, then you end up with bad policy at the end of the day and a widening of the gap between what society needs and what is being um, implemented. So if we also look at the situation, we're always, we have a system. So there's a what is part of the system, the system that exists. That should constantly be evaluated. And that evaluation feeds into the identification of what needs to change. But the question is, what goes into evaluation? Research, social engagement, meaningful consultation. Basically, it means engaging with society in multi multifaceted ways. And these are critical to making sure that the policy changes and the, identif the identification of what needs to change and the policies that are proposed um, are actually grounded in, uh, in society in some way. That's both research engagement, understanding from the bottom of your system what's going on and making sure that that is in your proposals. So the more radical the proposed policy change, the greater the need for careful appraisal and evaluation. So if you've got this constant process of change, evaluation and learning within your system, your system will constantly improve. If you don't have this approach, then your system will degrade. So let's look at, this would be my assessment of the NHI process to date. And I think that this is where I find huge concerns. Firstly, we've had no evaluation, a diagnostic of what's wrong within the South African health system. And I, I would argue if somebody wants to disagree with this, find the policy papers, find the evaluations, find the research reports that actually talk to an evaluation of what is going wrong with our health system. And we've had no appraisal of policies that are proposed. There's been no evaluation of, for instance, the NHI proposals that have led to the bill. Uh, we've had the pilot pro projects which have not fed in to the uh, explained or in any way interrogated the institutional and fiscal proposals that are put forward. So we've got two key aspects of the learning process that are missing. So, um, and I think that this is, uh, uh, 
this is problematic because it suggests there's something wrong with the way we're making policy around healthcare and potentially many other areas of government. So what we've had to date is a, is a narrow top-down political process that framed the policy endpoint and sought to pressure role players and stakeholders to legitimize it and to offer technical content to make it feasible. That's not a learning process. That's not how you make good policy. And it's the way to actually end up with, with a failure, not only of the policy proposal itself, but a failure to actually adjust the system in the way it should be. So let's look at the consequences of a poor process. First is you do not diagnose complex problems that require systemic responses. Second, you do not identify and implement needed systemic reforms timelessly. Third, the gap between social needs and the required social responses widen. And then you have multifaceted crises that emerge with increased frequency. And then the policy responses to those consistently take the form of short-term fixes and they drain resources. They drain resources because very often short-term fixes are expensive, inefficient, and they don't solve the underlying problems. And so we go back into a negative cycle. So instead of having the sort of policy, a proper appropriate cycle of improvement, we actually have a constant cycle of, uh, that, uh, of, of incremental decline. So the question is what needs to change if we try to look at it. Um, so I'm going to offer a sort of a, sort of a cartoonish reflection on, the, uh, on our system as it stands at the moment. The public system, this is the Bank of Lisbon building, the Gauteng Department of Health. This is what its head offices looked like uh, 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 over a year ago. And here we have the private sector's glossy finish. And the question is whether both, whether the private sector's glossy finish represents a success, a successful outcome versus the failure of the public system. The, the problem, and certainly as I would see it and have evaluated the system for a long time in pretty much all of the inquiries and analyses that I've done on the health system, is that both are two sides of the same coin. Parts of the failures that we see in the, ex, in the excess costs in the private sector and the potential decline in the quality of coverage in the private sector are actually a, a, a failure in many respects of government to actually implement a coherent system of regulation around the private sector. So it's effectively the outcomes that we see are a consequence of government failure. And this was a conclusion of the health market inquiry. Market failures in private systems are expected. They are known, they are identifiable. Um, in the health market inquiry, they were made very explicit and clear. And the uh, issue is that where you have market failures, it's not because the private sector is driven by greed and it's failing. It's because government hasn't introduced the mitigation measures that would make the system more efficient. And, and pretty much similarly, the public sector. The public sector is also a structure uh, set up in terms of laws, institutional frameworks, regulatory fr uh, structures, etc. And where it fails to perform, it is largely a consequence of the governance framework around it. So there is no way that a central structural three people in South Africa control either the private or the public systems. You need an organized framework of, uh, of regulation and continuously improved systems and structures to make sure that the, these systems are properly governed. And in fact, we have failed 
to govern either effectively. And the failures in the private sector are directly a consequence of government's failure to actually address systemic reform, of which the, the last reforms in the private sector that involved any systemic change were in about 2003. So let's just have a look at our systems. And I'm just using the COVID uh, outcomes as, a, as, a, as an indication. Now, this is from the DATCOV system from NRCD for the COVID-19 admissions in public and private systems. Now, take a look at the, at the green. The green is private sector admissions. The blue is public sector admissions. So firstly, you should be looking at that and saying, why are the public sector admissions so much lower than the private? Um, there are uh, numerous reasons that I've discussed with NICD. Um, they've said there are two potential consequences. One is that in the public sector, people are not going necessarily into hospitals soon enough. They're not, not basically ending up in hospital or they're being turned away during the peaks. The second is that they're not collecting the data properly. The private sector is collecting the data properly and we do have a, a, a much truer picture of what's going on. Now, the problem, what's revealed is sort of multifaceted issues because firstly, a huge number of uh, COVID patients have been treated in the private sector. Although their medical scheme covered, they were treated there. And if that wasn't available, they would have had to be treated in the public system. So the question is, what would have happened if we only relied on the public hospital system? And my assessments of the public hospital system since about 2000 is that there has been a systematic decline in public hospital services not because of the private sector's existence, but because the public sector has not invested in them. So the, there's a problem in that when you've got very centralized decision-making within systems that's not necessarily coherent, you don't necessarily have a, a, a need-adjusted response in hospital services in the public sector. So there's a danger of systemic under-provision and under-supply in pretty much the same way that ESKIM is under-supplied um, electricity and energy generation in South Africa in the past 20 years. And that is a consequence of having um, essentially a state-run system rather than a public system. And note that I'm not disagreeing with the idea of a public system, which I think is what we need for a large part of our health system, even if it's not the only part. Here is the testing volumes. It's also worth noting these is that in the private sector, 8 million tests administered, public sector, 6.2 million. So the private sector has actually administered more tests overall. Again, imagine if we were only limited to the public sector's tests. And would we expect that if we added more money to the system that in fact uh, the, the government would actually do more? Well, we can't be certain how government will actually prioritize in a state-run service, how it will actually prioritize the expansion of the service. There's no structural approach to doing so at the moment. So at this point in time, we have a, a very substantial public and private system. Both are enormous assets as part of our overall, overall universal coverage model. It's incredibly dangerous to put either of those systems at risk in a reform, given just how much of, uh, how many people actually depend on them for their healthcare. So as a quick diagnostic, uh, I'll look at a sort of five to 10 year scenario as to what we're currently seeing if you take into account the consequences of the weakening of the uh, uh, state-run health systems in comparison to the failure to properly regulate the private sector uh, to date. 
in the public sector, we have institutionalized corruption, and that will continue to potentially drive failures of efficient quality care provision, particularly for major medical and hospital-related services, which will therefore incrementally decline in scope and access relative to the population in need. That would be my projection going forward at this point. Um, fiscal pressures will result in, the, in uh, budget growth below the growth in the catchment population. So we will see a decline in the state-run health services as we move forward, both for governance reasons as well as for uh, financial reasons. The medical scheme system is facing a situation, if, you, if anybody reads the health market inquiry, you're looking at a system that is, uh, is, is coping with the systematic cost increases and the way it competes through, by systematically de-insuring people. And this will potentially continue resulting in a failure of financial risk protection for poor risks, that's pensioners and people with pre-existing medical conditions, and will result in a potentially down the line in the exit of private hospital beds due to the elimination of lifetime insurance coverage for many. And those will not be made up in the public sector who's not investing in public services. That's just a loss of assets in the South African context. The poor risks for catastrophic healthcare will drift incrementally to the state. That's the people who are sickest in the private sector. So they will drift to the public sector who just won't be able to treat them. And in, out of both systems, we have a systematic increase in the out-of-pocket market for primary care, which will continue to expand because both services uh, are, are, are effectively, it's not an insured benefit within medical schemes. And uh, many, many people who are dependent on the public sector choose to use private sector services on an out-of-pocket basis rather than going to public sector clinics. So this is the kind of cycle that we, one can expect to continue. And this really doesn't look like a very good way for our universal health coverage model to go. So the question is whether any of the NHI proposals address this scenario. So if we look at, there are three distinct elements to the NHI proposals. The first is, it has a pooling aspect. So this pooling aspect is typical of all health systems. It's actually important. It's about resource allocation. It's about the vertical and horizontal uh, redistribution features of, uh, of a system of health coverage and provision. Pooling involves risk and it involves income transfers. So there's a pooling aspect. The proposals involve basically um, uh, raising taxes equivalent to what medical schemes are currently spending and putting that all in one fund uh, which would then be redistributed. So the idea really is that it's uh, that it sees that it's that to improve pooling, it's got to basically increase taxes uh, dramatically, equivalent to about four percent, three to four percent of GDP. Um, but pooling does not have to involve that degree of consolidation. Pooling is a much more complex idea, and what you want to do is to make sure that pooling weaknesses in a system are not causing people to drop out of protection. And that uh, I'll discuss a bit more. It does not require a, um, a, a, a sort of a consolidation in, in, uh, to the extent that is proposed in the NHI proposals and which effectively make the proposals unviable for in, the, in any, even the distant future in South Africa. The second part of the proposals is the idea of a purchaser-provider split. So um, the purchaser-provider split presumes that, in fact, there will be efficiencies that are introduced into the system by, um, by basically having a single purchaser then, and separating it from the provision of healthcare. Um, 
The idea that efficiencies will result from a purchaser-provider split ignore the efficiencies possible also from vertical integration approaches. So you, uh, the, the reality is that the organization and opera operationalization of health service provision, including the shape of regional service configurations, is best done at a local level with a high degree of autonomy subject to the appropriate supervision and oversight. You, there's no evidence that purchaser-provider splits offer a dramatic improvement in the efficiency of a health system where the failure to actually organize and provide health services properly is a consequence of a, a, a governance weakness that is resulted in, that is driven by patronage and corruption. So I think that this is, uh, that's the second feature. The third feature is a monopoly purchaser. So this purchaser provider split will be administered by a monopoly. And uh, monopolies are not <laughs> don't have a good name for being efficient. Uh, Eskom is failing for a reason. And it was a monopoly purchaser of energy provision, uh, of energy generation for many years, and it has failed to, for supply to meet demand. It's a classic example of such a failure. And I, I would argue that Eskom is orders of magnitude simpler in terms of an, uh, an overall uh, uh, um, its policy context is, is actually much simpler than that of a healthcare system. So the idea that somehow a monopoly purchaser improves efficiency is, uh, is, is extremely odd. So each of these aspects, if they were proposed, um, should be supported by diagnostic assessment, by that I mean an evaluation indicating why they are necessary and which rational and reasonable interventions are required to address any problems. So let's just look at those. So here's, uh, I have in my report, a list of the problems that were identified with the system. And uh, in the various, the green paper, the white paper, white paper one, white paper two, and the NHI bill, and their relationship to the possible rationale. Um, and also what evidence was actually provided to support either the diagnostic or an appraisal of the policy options. So that's the relationship, that's pooling purchaser provider split monopoly purchaser. And the list of problems is provided down the left-hand side of this. And uh, so all I've done in this, when it goes yes or no, is really whether or not there's some kind of relationship between the issue and one feature of these three um, interventions. And then the, um, the last part refers, is the evidence. It refers to both evidence in the form of an evaluation and an appraisal. So I'm not going to run through all of this because it's of time. You can go through it. But in essence, note the right-hand column, which is the evidence uh, for everything that I've got. So in, the, uh, so, and in most cases, no, there's no relationship between the issue or the problem identified and any one of the recommendations that are made. And there is also no um, evidence that was produced in the form of uh, an evaluation or an appraisal for any solution or assessment. So essentially, I'm not gonna run through these just because of time. You can go through them, but it goes through everything from two-tier system generates inequity to fragmentation of funding pools, quadruple burden of disease. There's a whole array of specific problems that seem to differ um, with each report. Um, so it talks about curative hospice-centric services, again, Evidence, none, none, none. There's no evidence, no evaluation for any of these aspects. And I'll just point out on this maldistribution of an inadequate human resources, 
there's no analysis that actually that actually indicates that that is in fact a substantial problem in South Africa. There's no analytical piece of work that has been produced showing that this is caused by a public and private sector or that there is a maldistribution. There is no analytical document that is produced that shows how the institutional makeup has driven any kind of distribution and the numbers themselves are not even properly available. So, um, Again, as I go through, there is no evidence provided in the form of an evaluation or a, an appraisal of the policy relationship to these three recommendations, these three areas, anywhere in the reports. And I think that that is a serious problem. So if we had to look at uh, our current universal health coverage framework, um, and I'll go quite quickly because I know my time is, is very short, um, the current universal coverage model involves a pooling feature, which is where our finances are pooled within the... Um, Your yes. time is not, is not short. The time is appropriate. It is allocated 45 minutes, all presenters. So you have the right time, 45 minutes. And you, have no, that, you are left with about uh, five minutes of that. That's correct. Sorry, I was referring to my five minutes. Sorry. Um, so the... Um, so the pooling aspects of the public system are provided through taxes that are raised within government and then funds that are allocated either through a tax uh, uh, that are funded to provinces, provided to provinces through conditional grants and a provincial equitable share formula. And these transfers represent about 33% of the provincial revenue. Um, and out of that, the provinces who have the constitutional right to, uh, to organize health, the health financing of care, which is not going to change, and to provide the healthcare services. So you've got the private sector, which receives a tax credit at this point out of general tax revenue implicitly, um, which is really part of the universal coverage model because the amount that is allocated there on a per capita basis is about, there's a 17% differential. It's lower than the per capita spend in the public sector. And then you've got private contributions that form part of that, and then medical schemes which pool that care. The benefit and access guarantees are offered through the Medical Schemes Act and protect through prescribed minimum benefits and various other protections against discrimination. They help to prevent medical schemes from excluding people who are pro-risks from the system. It's not perfect, but that's what exists at that point. And at the provincial level, you have the organization of healthcare and provincial revenue that is appropriated out of the, the different revenue pools. I want to point out one feature of the, of these, uh, of the provincial equitable share formula, and I think it's just an important notion to, to understand, is the provincial equitable share formula is in lieu of provincial taxes that they, they have the powers to raise themselves in terms of their powers. But if they did that, there's the potential, if they raised their own taxes, there's a potential for an uneven distribution of taxes between provinces because of the different economic basis, which is a consequence of how we demarcated the provinces in 1994. It created this problem. And so the public finance response to that would be to have a tax capacity equalization formula, which would be quite difficult to administer. So the decision was made to rather raise that money through national taxes and then allocate it down on an unconditional basis. That doesn't mean that it's national money. This is just a more efficient way of provinces raising their own taxes. And I think that that's just an important notion to raise. When, when discussions 
occur around just removing those funds, which is in the proposed NHI for framework. So the, the proposed NHI framework, all the red areas are what now disappears. The conditional grant transfers to the provinces and the organization of, and financing of healthcare at the provincial level falls away. They become agents of a national structure and basically they're just contract, uh, contractors. Um, the white areas in the private sector show that the private sector ceases to be part of our universal coverage model. And the benefit access guarantees that we currently have effectively fall away. The tax credit is removed and everything is piled through one mechanism. And so our final system kind of looks like that. Now it looks nice and neat and easy at a sort of cartoonish level. The reality is that you've basically just massively changed two health systems and theoretically created a third. So why will the policy endpoint probably not be achieved or will fail? There's two aspects to it. The first is financial feasibility. The first is general tax revenues behaviorally not a substitute for medical scheme contributions. This is well understood in public finance. Uh, general taxes have a particular dynamic and you reach a ceiling as to how much you can raise regardless of the tax rate you apply. So you can't actually raise more than a certain level without massively distorting uh, the tax system. And we are potentially at the ceiling at this point. Proposed tax increases to achieve the policy endpoint are therefore not feasible. So we can't just increase tax rates and think the money will flow. It will not. It, just because uh, it's not going to flow from medical schemes into the, into the tax system. This, again, is well known. The institutional feasibility aspects are also important. Health systems are extremely complex with the purchasing function typically decentralized, not centralized to achieve efficiencies. The NHI proposal centralized what should be decentralized. And the proposed involvement of the executive and the appointments to all aspects of the proposed system will reinforce systems of patronage that have harmed performance of the state-run health system to date. The Davis Tax Commission, uh, I'm gonna, because I'm running out of time, specifically indicated a problem. The magnitudes of the proposed NHI fiscal requirements are so large that they might require trade-offs with other laudable NDP programs, such as the expansion of access to post-school education and social security reform. And given the current costing parameters outlined in the white paper, the proposed NHI in its current format is unlikely to be sustainable unless there is sustained economic growth, which unfortunately we do not have. Make your concluding remarks now. Okay, um, so what I'll, uh, I'm not going to go through uh, anything more there in the presentation, um, just to point out that there is a sustainable and achievable framework, a pathway to universal health coverage through augmenting the current system. It's, uh, it's outlined, it's been outlined in many policy documents in government and represents the most coherent way to achieve and enhance universal health coverage in South Africa. What, what the greatest path, uh, the, the, the path of least success is going to be to destroy our two existing systems of health provision and universal health coverage to create an untested version uh, uh, as a third option. And I think that to the extent that there are rights that are um, impacted by these particular proposals, it also proposes, implies that there will be legal challenges that will be successful to keep, uh, to, that will uh, uh, object to key aspects of these proposals being implemented. And the end point will really be that we will just have policy stagnation in South Africa and necessary reforms will never happen. 
And I think that that is actually going to be the risk that faces us. We will not have the systemic reform we need because we are basically being distracted by a policy reform that will never actually succeed. And I'll finish there. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Professor Alex van den Yever. Is that how I pronounce your surname? Yever. Van den Yever. Van den Yever. Yeah, there are many pronunciations, but Afrikaans people pronounce it supposedly correctly, and mine still says van den Yever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, been uh, listening to your presentations, uh, there are certain areas where I listened uh, attentively. You were saying that in South Africa, there are certain significant imperfections. Now, you did not conclude that, but look, when you start asking questions, you'll have to take a pen and paper because all members would like to ask, you will answer at one time. I'm just picking up those that I listened to from your actual words, significant imperfections in South Africa on health. Now, I did not hear whether those are only in public or both in public and private, but down in your uh, presentations, it was like you seem you seem to have them both in those uh, health systems. Uh, uh, you will probably also assist me during the course of this interaction, where you pick up that this bill is probably leaning on non-incremental rather than incremental approach. That part uh, you will assist me. I was wondering, probably you have to give a benefit of doubt and that you probably have not extensively read all other documents that uh, are in, uh, talking to this because I, I doubt if there's not a single health economist in the country or in the world who has made comments to the NHI. But um, I'm still Googling here, but if other people Google faster than me, they will probably come with that. Because I think there are some, some South African professors who have written or said something about this matter. Now, one, I'm wondering, Prof, why you actually, uh, I, I was writing this statement down, most people choose to go to the private because the public sector is not really assisting them. Now, I, I was really wondering why you choose to make such a statement and also don't make a statement that says uh, a significant number of South Africans who are on medical aids get dropped by the private healthcare sector when their funds are exhausted and they go to this very overburdened public sector. If they can't get out of pocket, they don't have enough, or they go home to die. Now, why do we miss out that? Uh, because uh, that is how private healthcare system in the country and in the world is so inhuman. You don't have enough money to pay, just leave the hospital, irrespective of whether you have stage three, stage four uh, cancer. That's how it does. Now, why this one was missed out uh, in the presentation uh, to compare, it's something that maybe you'll help me to understand. Uh, but let me then indicate there are two members that I've seen in the group wanting to engage. Uh, for those who have not put their names down there, I might as well take your names down there. The first uh, member to interact is the Honorable Gela, and the second uh, who will interact is Honorable Ismail. At the time I last looked at the list, that those were the only two. So if there's any other member, then let me take your names now in this platform. Honorable Munyai. Number three, Honorable Munyai. Honorable Sokacha. 
Honorable Sokacha, you'll be number four. Honorable Harvard. Honorable Dr. Harvard, you'll be number five. Myself, Chair. Honorable Dr. Tembegwayo, you are number six. Jacobs, thank you, Chair. Honorable Dr. Jacobs, you are number seven. Am I leaving anyone out? Honorable okay. Lindy Wilson is also on the WhatsApp group. Oh, she has put her name that side? Yes. That's why I'm saying all those members like Dr. Tembewayo, who at the time I last read there, their names were not there, can just raise their names on the platform. Honorable Wilson. Uh, maybe she's on and off connectivity. I'll put the head there in this number eight, uh, if she can hear me. Uh, Honorable Wilson, you are number eight. Can then I read your names uh, one after the other honorable members? You'll just come. Once the other member says, thank you, I'm finished, then the other member takes over. Number one, Honorable Kela, followed by Honorable Ismail. Number three, Honorable Munyai. Chase them away anyway before you start. You are number one, Honorable Kela, followed by Honorable Ismail. Honorable Munya, you are number three. And number four is Honorable Sokacha. Honorable Dr. Harvard, you are number five. And number six is Honorable Dr. Tembeguayo. Number seven, Honorable Dr. Jacobs. And the last one, Honorable Wilson. Uh, I forgot, honorable members, to wish some of our members who are in this platform and those South Africans who might be logged in a happy Eid. Today is the, a very important calendar in the Muslim community. They are celebrating Eid. We are thanking some of those members who also are hard at work and also will join the Eid celebrations later in the afternoon but chose to be with us here. Let us start with you, honorable Kela. I hope those people were Worrying you in the background, they have now, have now moved away, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, uh, let me first welcome the presentation. I hope that I'm audible. Uh, you are audible, thank you very much. And my op- apology, Chair, I, I can't switch on my video. Uh, where I am, uh, the network is not uh, stable. But I have a question that I want to ask uh, the presenter. Uh, In your slide on terminology, you attempted to differentiate uh, between service and a system. What is you, what, what, at what, uh, what is your position on understanding the object? of the National Health Insurance Bill uh, versus those uh, contained in the National Health Act. Uh, That will be my first question, uh, Chairperson. The other question that I want to uh, ask, um, you you have set out what uh, you refer to as the correct way of uh, formulation of policy and go on to suggest that 
uh, the process which has uh, culminated in the uh, proposed NHI bill seems to have uh, met these uh, requirements. Um, I put it uh, to you that the NHI bill is not a policy, but rather a, a means to realize policies that have been uh, formulated after years uh, of experience uh, and consultation. You mentioned the disparity and inequality uh, exciting in, a, in the current health system. You go on to accept that the concept of access to um, my apology, Chairperson, Simoyen, on accept that the concept of access to equitable, available, and quality care for all South Africans is a good concept. So do you believe that uh, the NHI will address these uh, inequalities and seeks to correct uh, this or not? Uh, that will be my questions, Chair, to the presenters. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Yeah. Uh, Honorable Kela, uh, they must release you from that cleanup campaign that you are part of there. Uh, yeah, we must tell them you are now yeah. in another, in another uh, responsibility. You are moving out of that cleaning campaign. Thank you. Honorable Ismail. Good morning, everybody. Um, and I want to say thank you for the presentation. I just have a few uh, questions. Number one, you make reference to the policy process. What are the implications whereby policymakers remove evaluation and appraisal of policy change options from the process. In your opinion, why would policymakers do this, and how would this benefit the process? My second question: In your opinion, how well does the bill protect the fund against corruption, theft, or maladministration? Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Honourable Munyai. Uh, thank you very much, Honourable Chair. Uh, let me start with the following persons. The first person, Honorable Chair, is as follows. Uh, does the presenter have any specific comments and suggestions perhaps on what in the bill needs to be changed? The presentation seems to focus on opinions and nothing specific on the bill itself. That must be changed to improve its uh, applicability within our healthcare systems. The professor, if I understood him very well, uh, I have one simple question for, for him again. Are you totally against the, the provision of the NHI bill in its entirety? I understand that you were instrumental in the creation of the private medical aid schemes or systems in South Africa as as you said in your previous uh, uh, resume, uh, to what extent are your views informed by your potential belief or interest that the bill seeks to destroy the medical aids? I want to also to, uh, ask another question, Honorable Chair. 
Uh, I must um, just a second, uh, Honorable Chair, because I have a lot of questions to, to ask from the from the prof. The other one that I want to get to ask the professor is the following. Um, one, uh, you have made a reference that nowhere in the world has ever been a situation where fragmented, multi-tiered uh, health financing, financing has been transformed into a single payer, single purchaser model as, the, as stated in the section two of the bill. Can you perhaps explain what informs, what reforms that you have happened in South Korea where they move from the uh, inefficient multiplayer system, multiplayer systems uh, to a single system that happened recently in the past five years? Uh, in your slide seven, where you show the infrastructural differences between a housing department in the down infrastructure in downtown Johannesburg versus the, um, the headquarters of the discovery in upmarket center. Um, can you provide an honest explanation of why there's a differentia differentiation on these two, two building or infrastructure? Do you agree that the discovery built the facility on the basis of denying its members uh, needed healthcare services, siphoning of the healthcare funds into marketing through the um, in-house administration cost, as in uh, you know, as re as as really put forward uh, in the findings, as evidenced by the findings of the health market inquiry, and also the banking and the financial and insu and insurance company that making exorbitant profits from its customers. Are you therefore not uh, comparing apples with oranges? Maybe of course with pumpkin. Uh, the other key issues, I think you must know that for the, for the uh, discovery, before they established the company, they used the IDC building in Centen, which was the low cost to be able to develop themselves. Uh, the other question honorable chair would be as follows. You refer to a state health services as an apparently bad thing. How do you understand that the role of the government in ensuring the, uh, the attainment of social economic rights, such as the right to access the healthcare in section 27 of the constitution within equitable system? I think also the other question honorable chair, do you not, don't you see a problem with two-tier system that continue to discriminate against the poor and perpetuate inequality in the Republic? Are you comfortable with the inequality which has been in identified as one of the drivers of the rioting in KZN and in Gauteng? One of the key issues that I need to put forward, it is only, and I'm saying the other question is that you seem to be advancing for federalism in a, in a democratic, uh, you know, unitary, unitary government. That's a product of democracy, where everything needs to be decentralized and anti-centralization of the process. 
don't you think, you know, for you to do that, to do that, you need a constitutional amendment, which South Africa is not going to do. And by the way, uh, your comfort, your comfort, uh, Honorable Chair, the comfort of the present Honorable Chair, uh, is about the current status quo of the two-tier system, which is radical and separate the rich and the poor to suggest that the reform is radical, is extraordinary neoliberal of the typical neoliberal economist. Uh, Munyai, that is your question number nine. I'm just finishing. How is it that you can't want to resolve the gap between the rich and the poor? Only the, you know, the, the, the neoliberal economies can seek to advance the, uh, such, a, such a problem. Because honorable chair, uh, only the, the free market fundamentalist and laissez-faire that believes in laissez-faire policies can want to not want equality within the Republic. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Um, uh, I've got a few questions from uh, Professor van der Yeffer. The first question, Prof, is, uh, is the crux of your argument that our democratically elected government is incapable and a failure. What are your specific views on the bill itself, setting, setting ideology aside? Then my second question, Honorable Chairperson, to Prof. 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 Van der Yeffer, do you agree that the challenges of our health system are well documented and people's experience of our health system should not be ignored and left to resolve themselves. Given that your presentation appears to disagree with the intentions of the bill and you are further blaming government for some of the private sector behaviors, are you then suggesting government should do nothing by the way of introducing policies that are aimed at addressing failures that are existing in our health system. And my next question, Honorable Chairperson, is some of the work, uh, uh, Prof, that this committee does is to get regular reports from the minister on the COVID-19 situation in our country. Prof, on June 30, we hosted the minister and it was during question time that one member of this committee complained about her helper, where she said, my, my Anna being turned away from receiving health services because she doesn't, she doesn't have medical aid. The department will argue that this is um, the, the exact way we need the, the NHI, so that the honorable members, my Anna, will receive that service even if she does not have the medical aid or cash on her. What is your comment on this? Then my, my, my second last question, honorable chairperson, Mr. Prof. Yefa have raised uh, 
his appreciation regarding the removal of the tax credit regime for contributions to medical schemes, which uh, you say it's a legitimate entitlement for a population in its current form. Does the current tax credit regime benefit the uninsured population as well? Please clarify for us. We have been told by many stakeholders that a majority of members of medical schemes are dropping out or are running out of benefits. The premiums are unaffordable and some of these consumers end up using the public health sector for various services. Does that justify keeping the current system in place? Please also consider inequalities associated with the current system in terms of benefit, the entire population. Also remember, Prof, that universal health coverage is about financial protection for all, not just insured only. Then my last question, Honorable Chairperson, very short. Your concern, Prof, about elimination of the social protection offered to medical scheme members through the Medical Scheme Act is noted. Section 33 states that only when the national health insurance is fully implemented, medical schemes will be expected to provide complementary cover. And Section 57 talks about a phased implementation of the NHI. My question to you, Prof, is once the NHI is implemented, what is your opinion about people insuring against the same healthcare cost twice? By this, I mean duplicative cover, one from the National Health Insurance Fund and the other from the medical schemes for the same health service. Will that not perpetuate the current inequalities, thereby threatening achievement of the universal health coverage? Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, the next one is Dr. Hubbard. Thank you, Honorable Chair. And also thank you, the Professor, for your presentation. I have three questions. The first one, in your slide three, where you describe NHI as a state, where in the bill is it stated that NHI will be a state scheme? My understanding is that Section 2 and the purpose of the Act has made no reference to a state scheme. Can you clarify this further, please? Second question, are you aware that the NHI requires mandated participation? Within that, there will be risk adjustment for the entire population, not only for the private sector as per your proposal. Don't you think it's important to expand cross-subsidization and the risk pooling to benefit the entire population, not just the consumer of medical schemes? The last question. Continue, continue, Dr. Hubbard. 
She's honorable. She's, she's, she's muted. Oh, so and thank you, honorable chair. Very sorry. I and I, I saw that I read all of uh, ask all of this. Let me repeat it again. And also thank you, Professor, for your presentation. I have three questions. Number one. No, no. Don't repeat okay. all three. We had no. we had all three. Is the last part that we did not hear, the third one. Oh, last part. Last question. Is your submission that we keep the same in the quality in access to health care? Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. I've got only one question based on uh, the, the list of problems and their relationship to the possible rationale uh, that was reflected in a, in a, in a, in a table format uh, that started with the problem, specified the sources, the relationship to reform and so on until the evidence provided in the form of research and analysis. And uh, uh, the presenter was not willing to go into details in this uh, um, section, but I, I feel it's very important, at least if we can have some extra information pertaining to the, the none, the, the sections where none is, is reflected in all the sections as part of the evidences that says there's none evidence provided in the form of the research and analysis. And uh, I just would like to ask the presenter to say, uh, okay, can you inform us on, on the importance of the inclusion of this list of problems and their relationships to the uh, possible rationale to the NHI bill as it is now, and how this section can be included and in which section? Uh, can it best uh, fit? And uh, just a matter of comment to say, Prof, when it comes to terminology as included in the NHI, they, they are meant to be understood by each South African or any other person who can be able to read the document. So it means that the terminologies as they are and the meanings thereof are written in such a way that they can, they can be understood. Whereas Prof's uh, way of, of uh, terminologies and the, their meaning, some, somewhere it's beyond the uh, mental understanding of an ordinary person who is just able to read and write. And I believe the reason why we have policies and the, the reason why we have a, a public a, a people, public opinion. It's for people to read, understand, and comment on what they have understood. So uh, the higher the terminology, the lesser the understanding by an ordinary South African. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you, Prof. for your presentation. Now, you seem to be insinuating that there has been no evaluation of what is going wrong in the South African health system. I just want to ask you whether you're aware of the diagnostic report that was prepared by Professor Guy McIntyre and how the health sector contributes to inequality in South Africa. Then you also speak about uh, 
or you seem to be motivating that the state continues with a two-tier system supporting the existence of a private sector that continues to weaken the public sector, especially in the area of human resource distribution. Is this a correct uh, notion? And if so, why should government fold its hands and do nothing about this precarious system that threatens population health and national well-being? In one of your slides, you've identified some of the challenges faced both in the public and the private sector. I therefore get the impression that you do somehow concede to the reality of the challenges we know which exist in our health system. What I'm not clear about is whether there is a middle ground where the interventions we need to consider for inclusion into the bill to ensure that negative experiences both in the public and private sector are addressed in the interest of consumers. And I'm talking middle ground in terms of your presentations. You also, uh, the question is whether you agree that the challenges of our health system are well documented and people's experiences of our health system should not be ignored or left and left to resolve themselves. Even that your presentation appears to disagree with the intentions of the bill, and you are further blaming government for some of the private sector behaviors, are you then suggesting that government should do nothing by way of introducing policies that are aimed at addressing failures existing in our health system? We do see the private sector beneficiaries also drifting to the public sector. Your presentation seems to suggest that such a phenomenon where privately insured individuals migrate towards the public sector when they run out of funds is something which will only start happening when the provisions of the NHI bill get implemented in South Africa. Thank you, Chairperson. Those are my questions. Honorable Wilson. Thank you, Chairperson. And thank you to Professor Fandenhofer for a, a very um, intense and, and uh, thought-provoking presentation. I have a couple of questions, Professor. Um, outside of the NHI, well, no, let me start again. Is there anything in the NHI that shows that the what proposals there are in the NHI to improve health, come, health outcomes outside of more funding? Um, there's been a lot of concern about a lot of the presenters about exactly how the NHI is going to be funded and exactly where the money is going to come from. Um, and, you know, I want to know if there's anything, if you believe there's anything in the NHI that proposes to improve their health outcomes outside of more funding, um, but we're not sure what the funding is in the first place. Given the overall cost of the Cuban health system at more than 13% of GDP, do you think that the NHI has any structural features that will prevent it from avoiding such a high cost of GDP? The monopoly nature, and, and you've discussed this, the monopoly nature of NHI means that the government assumes the cost of delivering health care to all citizens. What advantages, if any, are there going, what advantages, if any, are there going, is there, sorry, let me try and rephrase that so it's understandable. The monopoly nature of the NHI means that the government assumes the cost of delivering health care to all citizens. What, are they, what advantages are there going to be in this monopolized route as opposed to having a multi 
payer system that combines private and publicly funded healthcare systems, if any. If SA cannot raise the dedicated health taxes to the extent of 2.9% of GDP to fund this NHI, is there any point in implementing it? Um, we, we've seen various reports now saying that, you know, unless we reach a certain growth and a certain percentage of GDP, um, and, and we've heard this from in, the Treasury included, that, that NHI cannot be in, implemented. I'd like your comments on that. And finally, would you, do you think that the NHI, given all the, the information that you have provided today, would meet constitutional muster in a court. I thank you. Mama Sengwa is trying to speak. I will give her this space now. She was having a challenge with the connectivity. If, if it has improved, let's see a space now, Honorable Sengwa. Can you ask your questions? Uh, maybe she can hear me. I cannot hear. I cannot hear her. Okay. Uh, I would wait, Honorable Shengwa, if you could then post your questions here. Maybe we'll read it up for you. Uh, I'm mindful that we have uh, uh, asked. Uh, and exhausted the space for asking and he has to come back to answer. But uh, also let me not be left out to ask some questions from the, uh, from the professor. Uh, prof, there was a bit of, like, I think, let me borrow from Honorable Dr. Tembeguayo that uh, sometimes uh, the terminology will go above one's head where you're trying to make a distinction between the state and the public. I do have a challenge with that, because if you read on the constitution, unless then you say it must be changed in the constitution, uh, section 27 of the constitution, section 27 uh, in bracket two says the state, not anybody, the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures within its available resources to, ad to achieve the progressive realization of each of these rights. One of these rights that I mentioned above on 27.1 is that everybody has a right to have access to health care services, including reproductive health care. Now, it says the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures. Now, I would have to be guided what was that distinction we were making. Uh, but further around that, you were making a statement that um, why propose to cover what is already covered? Uh, you indicate to me which group is that which is already covered. Uh, was, that was what you actually made. Now, I wanted us to check, borrowing from this section 27, uh, section 27 of the Constitution, uh, I, I don't know how you, you missed that part because uh, Dr. Jacobs makes reference to uh, some of the writings of Professor McIntyre. One of the writings of Professor McIntyre is saying, South Africa is a divided society. There are those who are accessing health in the private healthcare sector, and there are about 4.5% of, of the GDP is spent on those, and they are constituting about 16%. 
The other 4% is the balance of the South Africans, who is 84%. Now, you are actually saying there's been no evaluation, there's not been any problem identification for what is actually happening. That's why I do get lost. If I was a, a student in your class, I would say, please help me to understand that part. When you are actually making a statement that there's not been no writings of the an evaluation of the health system in the country when we are picking up these reports. These are statements that are made by some of the uh, health economists. And uh, I'm just also quoting one who is Professor McIntyre in this regard. Now, I need to understand uh, how you missed that one or why you are not making use of that part uh, in, your, in your analysis. I wanted them to say, to check again, how can we ensure, however, that there's a more equitable distribution of healthcare workers and services availability? When the prices and the wages that are paid in the private sector are far, far way above those that are paid in the public healthcare sector. Uh, I wanted to check if you do believe that the amount and the quality of healthcare that someone gets should depend on their medical need or on their ability to pay for it. And uh, the, medic, the, the catastrophic health expenditure is actually the talk to it, that uh, you run short of your money, you get out. Uh, there's no other cover if you do need extra cover health, health-wise and you have no money. Uh, my last part is that uh, we do not agree with the evidence that comes from everywhere in the world, ranging from China, including US, that fee-for-service medicines dries up the cost of healthcare and induces unnecessary service use. Uh, I always make this to the presenters who come in to say, how do you explain that um, the cesarean section rate in the public hospital is average at 35%, that out of 100 women who come into our labor halls, 35 of those will go through a cesarean section and the other 65 will go home having had a normal de- delivery. But when you go into the private sector, cost for service, 70% of women who are pregnant and, and are admitted in the private healthcare sector in our country end up with a cesarean section. Uh, is it, don't you find an anomaly in that part? How do, maybe you'll make reference to say the government should have corrected it. I'm not sure whether that is part of the whole package of things that you're saying. Government has not regulated or government has not done. But let me then uh, allow you to uh, answer. Unfortunately, we will not take you beyond the um, 5 to uh, 12. You have to try and squeeze all that up to just before 12 o'clock. Thanks. Thank you for that, Chair. I, um, I'll do my best to respond to all of the issues. Um, and hopefully with some of the responses, I'll, I'll cover more than one. Um, firstly, uh, my presentation and how I've tried to reflect, it shows that there are uh, significant problems in our u- universal coverage outcomes um, in both the public and private sectors. The question is really whether or not we've properly diagnosed what is wrong at an institutional level and whether or not we've got reforms to address them. That is where I raise queries around the NHI proposals because they don't actually correct what is failing in either the public or private sectors. 
they, they are uh, they are un almost unrelated to the problems that we have with the health system. So the uh, that is a fundamental critique that I have of what we've got before. They're, they're in fact a misdirection from what is going wrong in our health system. They, they're divorced from them. So the um, if we had to look at the uh, so the the issue about the, the reference to the non incremental nature of the reforms is that they involve a very substantial change from the existing system. They are a, a very very large change, and one of the reasons why almost nothing has happened with these proposals, I would argue, for the last twelve years, is because they actually exceed the capability of government to even properly consider. That's the reason why nothing has happened, is that in fact, it is such a radical change that nobody really knows how to do it. And I think that that's what's gonna continue into the future. Um, the, uh, with respect to the- um, Or available uh, tonight. Sorry? Honorable, Honorable Munai, don't, don't tell us what is happening tonight, yeah? <laughs> um, okay, so the- uh, so I want to point out that the, um, the, the, the comment that I made about the group that is already covered is in fact everybody's at this point in time covered in one way or another. You're either covered through a medical scheme or you're covered through the, the public health services. So the, uh, so the issue is, uh, the coverage issue is not a problem, um, but as somebody pointed out um, going forward is that there is an issue about whether or not this is in fact a defragmentation of the existing system rather than attempting to cover an uncovered group. So in many cases, the reform has been um, expressed, it has been uh, uh, proposed as if it's trying to cover somebody who wasn't covered before. That's not correct. The uh, Korean example is a, a system in which Korea, over a period from about 1979 onward, developed a system of medical schemes, just to use equivalent terminology to South Africa, where they started to mandate medical scheme coverage. That was contributory private coverage in, uh, around employers. And over a long period of time, they increased the employer mandates to require smaller and smaller employers to cover um, their members their, uh, and their uh, families. And at a point in time, and only two administrators actually operated this entire scheme of multiple funders. And at a point in time, they basically just consolidated what was effectively a uniform method of coverage into a centralized purchasing model. I would argue that that model is not available to South Africa. Korea looks nothing like South Africa and its economic growth rates are around about 7% uh, per annum. In 1980, it's important to note, you know, when Betamax and sort of VHS was around, the per capita GDP in South Korea was below that of South Africa's. Today, it is about eight times that of South Africa's. So their economic growth rate could actually in, uh, incorporate an, in a relatively inefficient health systems design. And, it, and in fact, when they did introduce their single purchaser, costs didn't go down, they went up. And that's largely because the single purchaser model that they introduced it was too complex to introduce any other form of contracting other than fee-for-service. So just to comment on the issue of fee-for-service, you typically don't decree that fee-for-service won't exist anymore. You have to create the system, a systemic change that makes fee-for-service uh, um, a less desirable form of contracting. It doesn't just it, it cease to exist because you, um, you introduce an alternative contracting model um, or, or require it as a state uh, at all. It's not going to change unless you introduce the, the changes that make the system more efficient. Um, 
So the, uh, the issue was raised about people dropping out of medical skin cover into the state. So I've covered it in one slide. There's a systemic shift. And then there's a question as to whether or not people run out of catastrophic cover. The Medical Schemes Act has a prescribed minimum benefit requirement, which means that medical schemes must cover catastrophic care. And then, uh, and then whatever is outside of that is potentially subject to uh, deductibles and co-payments. The issue is that you cannot run out of coverage where it's a required, co a, 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 a required package. The drift that I'm referring to is where people, when they reach retirement, can't afford to pay a medical scheme contribution anymore because our system of retirement protection in South Africa is so flawed that probably around about two thirds of people lose substantial portions of their income into retirement and can't pay for any contributory scheme. So that is a fundamental problem that we have to solve. And that group of people will drift to the state and the state can't really accommodate them. So the mere fact that people are shifting toward the state doesn't mean that the state actually accommodates them. And that's a fundamental problem in the way we've designed our health system, because we do not harmonize between these two systems, which I will add, are going to continue to exist indefinitely into the future, regardless of what you think about them. The, the problems with them need to be addressed through the way in which we regulate them. So I just want to comment on the terminology issues that were raised, the state versus public. The, what, the term that I'm using, the, where the obligation is placed on the state, the democratically elected government and the legislatures uh, and in which uh, those structures are duty bound to set up the rules and regulations and structures by which we ensure that the Bill of Rights is achieved. That is the obligation placed on the state. That doesn't mean that the state has to create a state organization in order to deliver on that right. It, if you go through the constitutional court judgments, you will see that it imposes an obligation on the state to create institutions that achieve this obligation. And institutions includes laws, it includes organizations that are designed and have are governed in the public interest. That public nature of those organizations is not necessarily a state organization. It can be established by statute, but it doesn't mean that's a member of the executive selects everybody from top to bottom who effectively operates within that organization. That is then not a public organization. That is then uh, beholden to a uh, um, to structure that are not necessarily oriented toward the achievement of public value in South Africa. Um, the, this includes, if you look at the judgments, the constitutional court judgments in relation to Kruitworm, the requirement on government to establish institutional frameworks for people to protect themselves uh, with their own funds, where those institutional structures are necessary for them to be able to be placed in that position. And that is really where you are looking at regulatory frameworks that ensure that people are not discriminated against and excluded from protection and coverage. And that becomes an obligation on the state as well. And that will be how government governs a private set of arrangements that ensures people are protected. And that is where we are failing in the health system. Um, on the issue of um, service versus system, I'm merely making the point that, uh, that uh, very often these, uh, one fails to see a health system as a very complex uh, 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 set of arrangements, which don't change just because you want them to. Uh, you can see inequity, but you don't just solve it by uh, a draconian move. You actually have to understand the nature of the system and achieve a systemic shift in the way the system operates. And that's really the basic point that I'm trying to make. 
In terms of the use of terminology that the general public may not understand, I think it's actually beholden on government not to mislead the public in the use of terminology, where terminology is important to the public in understanding what a reform is about. And that's where I've queried the deliberate misuse of terminology such as universal health coverage and national health insurance in the public dis discussions, uh, where in fact it, uh, it, it purports to simplify these issues so that it actually distorts the true nature of what is being proposed. You can't do that. That is not proper consultation and engagement with society. Um, in terms of the issue of the private sector itself and its weaknesses, uh, pointing out that the uh, that the failures in the private sector are largely to do with the regulatory framework, and these have actually been documented in substantial detail in the health market inquiry, and that is basically not not suggesting or recommending anything like that is proposed in the NHI bill. It is recommending the appropriate regulatory framework to address the failures so that in fact you would protect people. So this doesn't end up being a grievance-based reform framework where somebody says, oh, well, you know, Discovery Health is a bunch of evil people trying to uh, um, greedily steal from everybody else. That gets in nobody anywhere in terms of reform. You've got to understand the system that generates those outcomes within a private system, as well as a public system, where people have abused the public system through systems of patronage where they have essentially privatized aspects of the state health system for private gain. That is also privatization and greed driving a failure of, an, of, a, of a major system in South Africa. We have to understand those weaknesses. The question of the diagnostics, so the issue of dimacantized paper and stuff, that is not part of a government appraisal. That's a private paper that she's drafted subject to the information that she has available to it. Governments job in doing an evaluation is to incorporate all evidence and formulate an evaluation that leads into a policy process. Di McIntyre's paper and my papers and those papers of lots of other people actually become evidence that is used in a policy process, which produces a final assessment. Now that public, that government document doesn't exist. It's a government document I'm talking about. And an appraisal of policy is a government document that shows that it has actually evaluated the evidence for a set of policy reforms. Now, what I'm saying by none in that table is no government document exists showing that they have evaluated what's going wrong in the public system, and that leads to the recommendations. And the same goes for if you diagnose a problem and you recommend a policy solution, you must appraise it to see that it actually is in the public interest and not to its detriment. That hasn't been done. So that's why we don't have a financial appraisal. We don't have an institutional appraisal. We don't have a diagnostic of why the state is not working. And Dyes McIntyre's paper doesn't address that. So the, those are actually very, very important issues because they talk to why the system is failing. On the issue of uh, what I pointed out in relation to the COVID statistics is, uh, is, is basically showing the load that is carried by different parts of the system and what really concerns me is that the state that the state health services don't appear to be capable of actually reporting their COVID patients correctly. And that suggests fundamental weaknesses in management, which flow from the institutional weaknesses in the governance framework for the, for the state health services. And I'm calling them state because they are not arranged as public, the, the governance framework, the corporate governance structures the relationship between the executive and the administration and the delivery of health services, 
that linkage actually makes them a state service rather than a public service. You achieve that public transition through the way in which you organize the governance structures of the state to separate the executive from the delivery of services. So that's to get the public nature. The responsibility of the state is to set up public structures, not to be them. So, um, in the, so uh, because I'm going to run out of time, I want to uh, maybe pick on some of the issues. Uh, um, the, the, on the policy process, the implication that I've raised there is that, in fact, we've left out the two major significant components of institutional learning in, uh, in the state structures by not having an appraisal and not having an evaluation. It means that the state itself is not understanding what's going wrong and not proposing reforms related to that understanding. And if we don't do that, we, we basically are flying blind. We're driving at night on a cliff with no headlights. And I'm afraid that is what the, has happened with the NHI proposals. And the question is uh, that was asked here, well, why, why did that happen? Why is that done? Well, everybody knows, and I've been around policy environment for a very long time, um, in, in many cases where a top-down policy strategy is implemented and you're essentially looking to ambush an, a policy process, then you don't do all the things that are required um, as part of a policy process. Uh, because uh, if you did, it would probably change the policy. And I think that that's the reason why it's not done. Uh, I think that's quite clear. Um, the, uh, a question was raised as to whether I'm totally against the NHI bill as it currently stands. My problem with the NHI bill, and I make it very clear, it does nothing. It's never going to be implemented to completion. It will never actually materialize in any substantial form because it actually is an intervention unrelated to the, the, the true problems of the health system. So you can implement it. You can pass a bill. It's not going to make any difference. The problem is that many of the actual problems that we have in the health system are just going to continue and they're going to deepen and this bill will do nothing to address them. That is my problem is that we're not actually looking at the actual problems and changing the health system productively. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, two minutes now, two minutes. Yeah, so I, there, there are still so many. I'll just make one final point on the tax credit regime and the comment there. And the fact that because I supposedly created medical scheme system, um, I'm trying to defend them. I just want to make it very clear. The tax credit regime deri derives from a tax subsidy that is being provided to people who cannot access the state services for free. There's a means test in place. And that means test means that every, basically all income earners and medical scheme members are excluded from catastrophic protection in the state services and the tax funded services. So the tax subsidy is in lieu of the subsidy they would have obtained in kind if they were to access the free state services. But the free state services are not available to them uh, structurally and on, a, on the supply basis, and it's not available to them on a financial basis. If they are not covered in a medical scheme, they will be bankrupted personally by using a state service. So that is the problem that is accommodated through the tax credit structure. And on a per capita basis, it is lower than the per capita expenditure on people who are covered for free in the state. So the issue is it's part of a universal coverage model in which medical schemes are seen as part of the coverage framework. Um, and uh, uh, just a comment on my role. I've, I've seen this stuff from various people who proposed that somehow the Medical Schemes Act created medical schemes. 
It's important to understand that medical schemes regulation emerged essentially to protect the public interest as medical schemes emerged over time from 1888, uh, when the first medical scheme occurred, there was no legislation. The legislative framework was introduced to protect people who covered in that environment from private interests. So the whole issue is to mitigate the risks associated with coverage in that particular environment. And so the Medical Schemes Act has evolved pretty much as the medical schemes framework for regulation evolved in South Korea, has evolved in Belgium and the Netherlands, in all countries where the universal coverage model has actually been created over a contributory system, which is an absolutely viable form of universal health coverage. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, honorable members, please, we are in a parliamentary set- sitting. This takes place within the precinct of parliament, including what you write on, the, on that. Please do not do that. Let's not do that. Um, we, uh, honorable uh, Professor Fander, uh, you have just given us what uh, is a document you have just given us highlights of the document that I would actually ask members to make reference to, because you have submitted a, do- a document here today. We're not going to be exhaustive of that uh, documentation that you sent to us, but it's for us to reflect on it and then uh, going forward. I also want to uh, appeal to you, uh, you are a South African that's actually having a contribution to make don't only make it to us, you also can make it to the Department of Health because we are considering a bill whose sponsor is the Department of Health. And therefore, you being one of those South Africans who have a special interest on health policies and economics, health economics, you should then find it within yourself to engage and actually raise some of the issues with them. Uh, You are just but one of those who have come to us to make your presentation will consider what we have brought, like we consider all others that have come through. But uh, your views can also be shared with the Department of Health. We'll encourage you to do that. We are closing comments in a sentence. Um, No, thank you very much for for inviting me today. And I I think that um, it's really important that we have um, the uh, discussions on health sector reform going forward on an ongoing basis. Thank you very much. As we let Prof exit the system, please, honorable members, get up and take a cup of coffee, a stretch, as we then welcome the next presenter, who is the um, American Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. Uh, there's an American Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. Please ask for sharing rights and uh, put your presentation. Members, you only got two minutes. Uh, I've just checked with me. It takes me two minutes to boil water (laughs) and also have a good cup of coffee. Uh, So stretch your legs and uh, we'll allow the start of this presentation at least uh, uh, three minutes after 12. Three minutes after 12 will start. For now, honorable members, just a couple of stretches and a cup of coffee or tea. Uh, No other...
Okay, good day uh, once more to the presenters of this uh, uh, program, American Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. You are now in the Portfolio Committee of Health. You are meeting the members that you had indicated that you want to make a presentation to. Your 45 minutes will start in the next minute. You will introduce yourself and start your presentation. It's 45 minutes that you need to play with, with the presentation. Members will then interact with your presentation and they will come back again to uh, answer the questions that are clarity seeking. Your slides currently are not in the right space. They are, they are two in one. Can you then make it that you have one slide at a time in the slideshow? Then you can take it from there. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And Lee, where do I go to get it into full screen? It is full screen on my side. Sorry about this. Go back into display settings and click on the arrow. Where is the display settings? Up on the top. Above you. Next one. Next this one. one? No. Next. The one that says display settings. That one. Click on the arrow. No, there's no arrow there. It doesn't let me. It unfortunately doesn't let me, and I'm not a Zoom user, so I apologize for this delay. Angela, may, may I suggest maybe someone else tries and display? Okay. Uh, one of our colleagues. Lee, do you have it on your side? Let me try. In the computer situation. Um, apologies, nice. Thank you, Nyakini. Yeah, you can start. The presenter can now start. You're on mute, Angela. Sorry, technology is not my friend today. So um, on behalf of the American Chamber of Commerce, I'd really like to thank the Portfolio Committee on Health for this opportunity for us to make an oral representation following our written submission that we gave in November this year. Um, my name is Angela Russell, and I am the CEO of um, the American Chamber of Commerce. And on the panel with us today is David Jarrell, one of our members, Dr. Judy Coates, um, Lee Gonkokula, Noreen Rao, and Yapini uh, Mabunda. And we're just really going to go through some introductory remarks, talk to points of principle, look at recommendations, and then give some concluding um, remarks to you. Lee, I don't know if you have it on screen yet. So let me start by saying um, there are over 600 American organizations who are invested in South Africa. Who we don't see your slides as yet. We see your slide uh, in our presentations, but here we have not displayed that as yet. 
And we're trying to get them up. Otherwise, I can display them as I had them earlier. So at least we can be effectual um, in the meeting there. Sorry. I apologize. Can you see now? Can you see yes. this now? We can see. Uh, if you can't improve that to be on a slideshow, that's fine. Uh, okay. Um, thank you. I think this is the best I'm going to do, so I really apologize for that. So as I was saying, there are over 600 organizations um, in South Africa who employ over 221,000 employees, both directly and indirectly. And AmCham is the voice and advocate of American business in South Africa. And really what we do is we seek to enrich bilateral trade and investment between the two countries. Yes. Honorable Chair, I want to ask why, why Prof. Alex is recording the meeting because you know, this is nothing to do with his presentation. Uh, Professor Fanyere, you have been asked to exit the system. Thank you very much. Uh, sorry, I, I'm not recording the meeting at all. I think I was made co-host in order to be able to give my presentation. I did not uh, record the meeting at all. I've got nothing to do with recording. Hey, please leave because it's done. Point of order, Chair. No. Point of order, Chair. Yes, Honorable Wilson. Chair, we've had several presentations over several weeks, and those presenters have been entitled to stay, and you have offered the, them the opportunity to stay and listen to other presentations on every other occasion. There is absolutely no reason why Professor Van der Heerfer has to leave now. Yes. I second Honorable Wilson's input. I also second Honorable Wilson's input. It's very much unfair. Thank you. Uh, and he's not leaving. Uh, <laughs> he's not leaving. Honorable Dr. Susan, I have not made that determination. Now you can't force it to me. I will give me that you have made your, your, your request. Uh, Honorable Munai, we have had presenters who have come in here and have presented, and we did not uh, ask them to leave. Immediately they finished their presentation. Some have actually done so. I have even sometimes said to other presenters, uh, you, you're welcome to listen to this other sister presentation. It's very clear. It's clear. It's closer to what we have done. So uh, I have not uh, had a situation where a presenter who has just presented will immediately be asked to leave. They have come in, presented, sometimes stayed. Others said, they look, thank you for the invite to stay, but uh, we have other pressures, and then they leave. So I have in the past extended that to some of them. So I think let's leave it at that and, uh, and allow him to stay as much as he would. In any event, honorable members, let's not make a big issue out of this. This is being recorded anyway by our parliamentary processes and the TV in parliament. So. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Let's, uh, I, I like the way Dr. Tembokwai is speaking. He speaks like a baby. 
He's not leaving. He's not leaving. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, 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 uh, uh, Honorable Nkolisa. Sorry. Uh, don't yeah. ever say what you said. Don't ever, ever do no, that. Let's, let's, let's ever, go ever. Let's go on to the presentation of the American Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. Professor Fanirian can stay if he so wishes. Thank you. Sorry, Chair. Um, my host um, privilege has been disabled, so now I am unable to um, share my screen. So Is I there no like other it. member from your team who can be able to do that better than you? Um, I think they... our own... Lee have, my privileges um, have also been disabled. Yeah, so our privileges are not. There we go, Lee. Uh, Ms. Machalamba, can you assist the presenters uh, on Lindogusha? Who's assisting them to get going with their presentation? Lee, we can see your... Um, Are you your able in- to see it? We see your inbox. Okay, hang on one second, because it's, uh, it's showing the presentation on my side in full. Mm-hmm. So Maybe just give it to Judy share. Apologies for this. We all have to be patient with technology. Here we go. Thank you, Judy. We have someone who can do it. Um, So, yes, um, if we can just go to... um, um, I've, obviously, I've introduced um, who I have introduced um, the team who are presenting to you today, and we will go through introductory remarks, point of principle recommendations, as well as concluding remarks from ourselves. Next slide. So, as I was saying previously, um, there are over 600 American organizations who are invested in South Africa and employ South Africans, over 221,000 of them, both directly and indirectly. And what the American Chamber is, is the voice and advocate of American business in South Africa. And really what we seek to do is to enrich bilateral trade and investment between the two countries. In our deliberations going into this presentation, we obviously sought views from the members of the healthcare industry. But I think it's also important to note that we also extend this to our wider constituency who work across various um, industry sectors. And what I want to say is in this presentation, we are not going to focus on specific concerns around the design, details, and management of national health insurance, but rather we're going to discuss general um, points of interest for our members in improving and strengthening the equity, quality, access, and affordability of of healthcare. And what's important to say at the onset of this presentation is that we are here to raise concerns constructively, and and we want to partner with you um, to collaboratively address these concerns to realize this important objective. So what I wanted to show with this slide, and you will recognize some of these logos. So even though we have the likes of Abbott, AbbVie, Amgen, Pfizer, J&J, Gilead, who are members of ours from the healthcare sector. We also have members from the IT sector, that of Apple, Amazon, we've got Dell, uh, we've got um, Intel, IBM. We also have Microsoft, for example. We've got manufacturing sector with the likes of Procter & Gamble, Revlon, Coca-Cola, Colgate-Palmolive. 
Um, and then also automotive, the likes of Ford and, and Goodyear tires, and, and just to, to pick out KFC and McDonald's. So we do go a, across a whole range of, of industries, and I just wanted to show you the diversity of our members, and these are just a few of them. You can go to the next slide, please. So these 600 American organizations are present in South Africa, and what I want to advise is that they do invest billions of rands per annum in enterprise skills and social economic development each year. And they are invested in progressive social solidarity. So even though we know, for example, Ford recently invested 15.8 billion rands in the country with their new plant, we know that PepsiCo and Pioneer, uh, purchased Pioneer, for example, and invested 24 billion rand. It's also important to note that these 600 companies are also paying tax into the fiscus and are therefore also contributing in that way towards the healthcare system. I also wanted to highlight the fact that we work very closely with the US government. And for those of you who are not aware of the contribution that has been made to the PEPFAR program in South Africa since its inception in 2004, they have invested over 100 billion rands in the PEPFAR program to fight against HIV, AIDS, and TB. They've also recently invested over a billion rand in fighting COVID over the last two years in establishing field hospitals in underserved provinces, providing hand washing stations to schools, providing over a thousand ventilators to treat South Africans. But the private sector of American organizations have also rallied together and provided over 27 million rands into the Solidarity Fund, and providing various PPE, hand, um, hand sanitizers, and they really are committed at the moment to provide relief funding and food parcels into KwaZulu-Natal, in, into the affected areas. The American um, government has also just committed 10.1 billion rands to Aspen to manufacture COVID vaccines for the African continent. So really why I wanted to show is that the US and American, uh, US government, American organizations really are committed to South Africa and really are invested in the quality health provision. So in essence, AmCham and its members support the principle and the objectives of universal healthcare and access to health, quality healthcare for all South Africans. But really what we believe is that the design and benefits under the national health insurance should be patient-centric, they should be evidence-informed, they need to be holistic to effectively and efficiently increase equitable access to quality services, and it should be built on the pillars of transparency, strong and effective governance, and relevant stakeholder participation. And we really do appreciate the complexities that are involved in realizing this objective of universal health care and the achievement of national health insurance principles in a manner that is compatible with sustainable healthcare sector, we be, believe is important. But what I want to reiterate there is we want to work with you to be part of the solution. So even though we are bringing concerns to the fore, we also want to recommend some solutions and be partners with you as we walk by your side um, on this momentous journey that we are embarking upon. Thank you. Okay, um, thank you, Angela. 
for the introductory remarks. Please go back to the other slide. Um, yeah, and I, I will direct to say, please move on to the next one. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nimbini Mabunda, a board member at Amcham. And what Angela has done is to lay the foundation in terms of introduction of who we are. In this section, um, uh, honorable members, what I would like to do um, is to go deeper into specific points of principles that we like to raise. Important that we have submitted, obviously, a full uh, document um, raising our commentary on the NHI, but we've picked up four points of principles that we believe are priority to us and we'd like to discuss. My role is to raise the issues, explain why they are issues to us, and my colleague will then go into recommendation. As Angela said, we don't just want to raise issues, but we also want to work with you, partner with you, and work on the solution. Please go to the next slide. So the first issue that we wanted to raise, or rather a point of um, principle, is that whatever we do with NHI, as Amcham, we strongly believe that it needs to be conducive to the investment climate in South Africa. Why is this important? Is that we all know that the country is in dire need of uh, investment. The president, uh, since 20, 2018, has been hosting investment summit with the aim of raising 1.2 trillion uh, within five years on investment. The president has further gone on to say it is important for our economy sustainability on going forward that there is more public-private partnership. It is in this regard that we believe as MCHM that the NHI bill creates that environment for continued investment. At the moment, we believe that there are certain elements of it that may create uncertainty, both for employers and employees, that can potentially be negative in terms of foreign direct investment. Apologies, Chair. I think there are some connection issues with our speaker. Let's give him a minute. Can you hear me? All right. In your opinion, you can continue. We lost you there for a Can you still hear me now? We can. Okay, thank you. And I think the next point for us, what's important, is uh, the investments need to really be conducive from an innovation point of view. Because we all know that Innovation costs money. It requires a lot of research and development investment. And it is important that for the system to be sustainable in terms of NHI, we continue to innovate. Innovate in terms of treatment, digitalization, medicines, and infrastructure. And that will require the private sector to continue to innovate. So specifically here, the two concerns we have is in what appears to be single exit pricing. Um, that model where we believe can create a, a lack of competition and can create concerns around climate for investment. 
The second one specifically is on the competitiveness of the healthcare sector. We believe that for it to be competitive, patients need to have uh, a choice and um, an and improved outcome. So these for us are quite important that whatever we do need to encourage fair and open competition and multi-layered and diverse supplier chain, something which we do not believe that the current proposal fully accommodates. Please move to the next one. The second part, and I believe honorable members, you would have had this a couple of times, uh, but it is important that we reiterate and add our voice on this. It's about long-term sustainability, particularly talking about funding for the NHI. Here, we're referring to those who have gone before us. In many cases, when we talk about universal um, healthcare uh, policies or universal access, um, the NHS in the United Kingdom is pointed out as one of the best practice examples. Even that NHS is under pressure, um, and you would have seen a commentary in the public space around its sustainability and its huge drives to, re to reduce costs. Uh, some other notable ones, like um, the proposal to roll out universal care in, the, in, in Ireland, was abandoned because the costs were just prohibitive. So we are concerned that we haven't seen um, um, National Treasury a paper on the financing of this and the absence of associated money being. And therefore, without that, we know that the funding of this is going to be a challenge. Now, we also know that the enabling environment for sustainable funding is economic performance that is growing. But we know that right now that our economy, of course, partly because of the pandemic, but more so because it hasn't grown for a while. We do not believe that we have the GDP performance sufficient enough to sustain the kind of funding. And therefore, we would like to um, um, ask for a consideration and a sharing of the funding mechanism, particularly around this. This is made worse because the president has made it clear um, of late in terms of redirection of budget that has happened to fund the fight against the pandemic, but more so in the economic reconstruction and, recon and, 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 and restructuring or re revival plan, it's been clear that it needs to be an, 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 an infrastructure-led economic revival, which means that some of the resources will have to be redirected to drive employment and economic growth. And we believe that this might have negative impact on the NHI funding. And therefore, we're raising that as a question to say, from a point of principle point of view, this needs to be discussed so that whatever we launch is sustainable. Please go to the next one. The next point for us, um, uh, number three, is progressive social solidarity. Here, it's about the project plan for rollout. We, we have not yet seen a full, fully detailed rollout plan and milestones that goes with it. We have seen something that talks about the, the phased approach uh, linked to dates. But we believe that what's, what's, what's key is what is achieved within those dates. So not a fixed time rollout plan, which is not as detailed as we'd like to see so that we can comment on that and use some of the learnings we have, but we really would like to understand a little bit more from a rollout implementation plan 
so that it can allay certain level of uncertainty that, uh, that, that, that exists. We believe uh, that the implementation must be faced starting with the most vulnerable groups and proper detailed project plan would be great for greater commentary and input. And lastly, we believe that private insurance should stay to offer optionality and support capacity uh, during the rollout because as we phase and we raise the funding for that, those who cannot afford needs to be covered through NHI, but those who can, there needs to be a, a, a multi-tiered system which gives optionality for private insurance to continue so that there is a balance and we do not create too much strain to the resources. Please go to the next one. Lee? Is it frozen? Oh, thank you. So I've covered this, uh, but more around the, pa the patient choice and ensuring that people have the rights to continue to insure privately, uh, not, uh, notwithstanding um, um, uh, the mandatory participation in the NHI fund. Again, like I said, we'll offer specific suggestions and recommendations on this one. The last one for us, um, please go to the next one. The, ne the last point of principle, Lee, that we wanted to raise, again, should not surprise uh, uh, you, but here we're bringing in the learnings also from a lot of things that have happened from a governance point of view. And we're saying that the NHI um, is of extraordinary scale on social impact and indeed, may I say, complexity. And given that, it really needs best practice in the governance system of this level of complexity. That requires transparency to ensure that there's public confidence across both the public as well as the, 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 the public system. So we believe that there are world-class proven effective and transparent governance practices that can ensure that there's public confidence. And the, and the key learnings here and some of the private sector practices in terms of the governance are important um, to implement. And specifically, we'd like to ask for clarity on the role of the minister, uh, where we believe that we need to be clear around the separation of powers. We think specifically that we need to be mindful of the challenges of too much power resting with the minister and being centralized which we believe, if not carefully managed, can cause misalignment and ownership issues between provinces where execution lies. So we believe that there needs to be some real empowerment. And the amendments to the 11 other pieces of legislation should also be dealt with through the normal process of public participation. So in essence, these are the four points of uh, principles that we wanted to raise as MCHAM, and I will now I'll hand over to my colleague, Neren, who will discuss our recommendation in this regard. Uh, good afternoon, Chair, honorable members of the committee. Uh, we, we appreciate the opportunity you've permitted us uh, this afternoon to, to share with you our recommendations uh, with some specifics. Uh, the details are, of course, pre uh, presented in our submission, but these are the points we've chosen to highlight today. Uh, next slide, please. 
Amsham has made it clear in our opening remarks that we are strongly supportive of competitive principles in our economy, in whichever area of a public or private sector that these principles are relevant. And equally, we would then, we would then support that the NHI is, is underpinned insofar as is feasible by competitive principles. Accordingly, we would recommend the deletion of clause 3, 5. Uh, subsection 5, uh, in order to support uh, a competitive access to the NHI and competitive participation in the NHI. As Inyampini has raised, uh, we do wish to clarify the roles of medical insurance uh, within the NHI system. While the bill repeatedly refers to medical insurers as having a complementary role to the NHI, the nature of that complementary role is lacking in specifics. What makes this more challenging, of course, is that we have yet to define the, the, the role of the NHI itself comprehensively, and therefore it becomes difficult to define uh, the complementary nature of the, uh, the medical insurers within this environment. We have also recently had a very positive experience as a country in terms of how we responded to COVID-19. The positive experience has to do with the partnerships that we saw uh, come about in various aspects of response, response to COVID-19. And these broad-based partnerships and the lessons associated with such partnerships, we believe is an, an important lesson to take forward into an NHI environment. Accordingly, AmCham me members offer their support and offer their partnership towards the realization of an appropriate national health insurance system for South Africa. Next slide, please. As Inyampini mentioned earlier, we have concerns about the financing of the NHI. Others have raised this repeatedly over the course of consultation with the national health, uh, national health insurance uh, proposals and policies. Uh, in, at this stage, what we would like to see is a financial plan or gain insights into the financial model that is intended to underpin the NHI. And we believe that the path of the NHI bill needs to be delayed if necessary until such financial plan is available for consultation. We also believe that the path of the NHI bill could further be slowed in order to incorporate the findings of the health market inquiry, the prescribed minimum benefits process that's underway, the uh, low cost benefit options project that's also underway so that we have the best, the best that's to come out of these processes incorporated in the structure and design of the NHI. Lastly, on this slide, we have repeatedly mentioned that for us, it's crucially important that the NHI, that our approach to the NHI is broad-based and representative of multi-stakeholders. Accordingly, when it comes to the restructuring and the incorporation of substantial structures within our public sector landscape, such as COIDA or DIMWA, the uh, Road Accident Fund, we believe that the, the processes relating to these need to be subject to a NEDLAC, uh, NEDLAC process, uh, that all parties should have the, uh, the opportunity to consult through NEDLAC on the way in which these 
key structures are to be incorporated in the NHI. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, as Inyampini repeatedly mentioned, uh, social solidarity and progressive social solidarity is crucial to us. When one looks at the broad frame of social solidarity, we have identified the following specific challenges uh, in terms of a social solidarity approach. While user registration, patient registration, is very clearly handled in the bill, uh, we are concerned about registration of healthcare practitioners and how they are to align uh, with the NHI bill or the NHI structure when it comes into being. We were unable to identify specifics in this regard. When it comes to patients or user involvement to the NHI, we also have a concern, as others have uh, put to the table, that in the current proposals, we are limiting the right of patients to self-insure. We also appreciate the phased implementation approach that's adopted in the bill. Uh, we believe that this is this is a a wise approach and has the potential to increase the success of the NHI. This the, the phased approach has also been um, proposed many times by commentators on the bill. However, what we would like to to suggest be considered that the milestones that we adhere to in this phased approach are supportive of achievements in terms of implementation rather than time-based milestones. While it is typical of most projects to follow time-based milestones, we believe that with the NHI and given the magnitude of what we're trying to achieve, it's important that the milestones that are put forward are informed by multiple stakeholders um, and that progress towards those implementation milestones are also assessed by a broad base of stakeholders. Many have also raised issues in, re in respect of ben the benefits package that the NHI would offer and the structure and operation of the benefits committee. Now, while we do have some concerns, and I've mentioned these earlier in relation to benefits, uh, as a point of departure to uh, constructively participate in this process, we would like to suggest that benefits design follow the series of principles that are evident on this slide. So the design principles that we suggest underpin benefit, benefits and benefit access is a sensitivity to the local context in respect of our local disease burden, transparency so that patients can easily understand their rights and their opportunities for access under the NHI. We believe that the benefits design process should promote choice and include, include access to innovative therapies and lastly, we believe that the benefits design approach should be in, uh, uh, evidence-based. Next slide, please. Uh, many have also voiced concerns around governance, and we equally have concerns around governments uh, as the American Chamber. We have recently seen that in dealing with uh, state-owned enterprises, strong policy moves have been made and we're optimistic about the future of our SOEs that are now uh, within a new policy regime as opposed to the challenges that they experienced in the past. 
Accordingly, we believe that the NHI presents an opportunity to learn from the hard lessons experienced by other SOEs and start on a sound footing from a governance perspective. The scale of the NHI from our perspective demands that it be subject to a multi-ministry responsibility as opposed to being the, the, uh, within the domain of just one ministry. We would suggest that uh, in addition to the health ministry, we consider whether this multi-ministry accountability structure also includes the minister or his representative from trade and industry, the minister or his, or his or her representative from finance and the minister and his or her representative in respect of cooperative governance. Uh, that The latter, of course, uh, given that uh, provincial and uh, community structures are subsumed into the NHI uh, as a centralized structure. We also propose that the NHI fund uh, be accountable to the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, as well as to the Health Portfolio Committee. Next slide, please. Lastly, um, the Minister's powers and exercise of discretion have repeatedly been raised in consultations and in submissions to this committee. Um, for us, the importance relating to those powers and the discretion there too is that they are defined in terms of specifics. We suggest that this, as a first measure, the minister's powers be specifically aligned to each stage of the phasing process, uh, the, the milestones that we've previously discussed. Secondly, in relation to the issue of broad sweeping powers, uh, we were concerned about sections 57 and 58, which we see as proposing omnibus amendments, broad-based amendments. And we would rather favor, favor that when it comes to broad-based proposals within the uh, NHI bill, there is provision that the implementation of those proposals be subject to public participation in their own right. This, we would imagine, would help limit the uh, risk of misalignment and would also reduce the risk of unintended consequences when we are uh, implementing broad range measures within the overall NHI implementation. Thank you very much, uh, Chair and members of the committee. I will now hand over to Angela to provide a few concluding remarks uh, in terms of our American Chamber position on the NHI. Thank you, thank you, Noreen. Um, Honourable members, I think just to give concluding remarks, I think we all know that health is a fundamental requirement for business productivity as well as economic growth, just as it is fundamental for an, uh, an individual. And we do support the principle and objectives of universal access to quality health care for all South Africans. Health policy should factor in the national con um, contextual priorities, including social inclusion, affordability, sustainability, as well as ongoing investment in healthcare products um, and services. And we also think that investment and innovation are fundamental and they are a result of competition policy certainty, sound governance, and vision and skill. The concern that we bring before you that in this form as a single fund, we do not believe that it will promote a positive outcome for those. 
So AmCham is of the belief that private sector can add real value to the efforts in advancing universal healthcare coverage, including scaling innovation, building capacity, and improving positions. And I think the example of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout with the public-private partnership there um, is case in point. But going on, ongoing um, dialogue and engagement, we believe, is essential um, between governments as well as the private sector, and it remains paramount to achieving sustainable outcomes and success. And on this basis, we do believe that we need to get it right. So in order for this, we would propose that maybe an additional drafting, um, is additional round of drafting would be required. And with that, I would like to thank you for the time, as well as the opportunity of us being able to present to you um, this afternoon. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, Angela, just on your very last word, I don't know whether you are very familiar. I'm not sure whether you are a citizens of America or you work in America, but you are South Africans. If you are, you are, I hope you are familiar with a green paper, white paper before a bill. Now, if then you are saying everything must restart, you'll have to indicate at what level, at the green paper or at the white paper level, uh, because that is the process. If you are not familiar with those, then we can actually assist you to understand the process of a, a drafting of a policy in the country. Let it go through those things. I'm just saying, Picking up on the very last uh, comment uh, as you are closing your your presentation, uh, oh, Mr. Mabunda was very selective in quoting UK uh, challenges that uh, he's picking up now in UK in their NHS, but he did not pick up the very first that the United Kingdom actually implemented NHS under a very stringent conditions, they were coming in from the world war. The world was just from that. And therefore they said, you can't wait any longer, we start. Now, I wouldn't know what worse economic crisis under uh, downturn you could have in the world other than post COVID, post the world war, but to be brave to say, we as United Kingdom, despite that, will move on with this process. You were also making a comment about there must be a fair competition I missed out as to between who and who. I was waiting to check on that part. Uh, I think we need to agree. We, we miss each other when we read this bill because in the presentation here, there's a reference that there's going to be a depletion of the private healthcare service provider. Now, we need to be educated where to find that because uh, it even talks about um, you know, enrolling and getting... Uh, the participation and involvement and the support uh, of uh, uh, private healthcare providers in the NHI. Now, here in the reference has been made to a depletion of that. Uh, I, I also think it was Mr. Mabunda was very selective in his principle of social solidarity, that he speaks mainly on limiting rights to self-ensure. Uh, I just wonder if this presentation that we are making will augur well with a 25-year-old single mom who is your employee preparing a beggar for me to go and buy this afternoon in one of your McDonald's shop. Uh, if that could be 
a true representation of the social solidarity. But this was just my observation on your presentation. Uh, some members here will engage with your presentation. May I recognize, because at the time I checked the platform, there were no names that were coming through. I will take them here on this platform. Honorable members, those who want to engage with the presentation. Honorable Che, Honorable Ismail. Honorable Ismail, you be number one. Honorable Sokacha. Honorable Sokacha, you are number two. That's it. Jacobs, Che. Honorable Tata Jacobs, you are number three. Wilson, Che. Honorable Wilson, you will be number four. Dr. Harvard. Honorable Dr. Harvard, you are number five. Okay, we leave it at that. Five honorable members will engage the presentation, starting with Honorable Ismail, one after the other. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, and thank you for your presentation. I just have a few questions. My first question, in your slides, you mentioned that the bill creates an uncertain environment for investment. Now, what are the reasons for this? And what parts of the bill, in your opinion, would result in hesitancy for investment? My second question, you mentioned a competitive sector is the way to go. In light of this, what is your view on the impacts of a single purchaser model? And my last question, number three, you mentioned that the funding model is unclear and therefore the sustainability of the NHI is unclear. Assuming there is not enough funding a few years into the implementation of the NHI, how can this impact access to quality healthcare or even the economy? Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Let me also welcome the, <clears throat> the presentation. My first, I've also got some few questions, Chair. My first question is around uh, your concern about the limitation of rights to ensure privately is noted. Section 33 states that only when NHI is fully implemented, medical schemes will be expected to provide complementary cover. And Section 57 talks about a phased implementation of the national health insurance. My question then is, once NHI is implemented, what is your opinion about people ensuring against the same healthcare cost twice? By this, I mean duplicated cover, one from the National Health Insurance Fund and the other from the medical schemes for the same health services. Will that not perpetuate the current inequalities, thereby threaten achievement of universal health coverage? My second question is, as Chamber representing USA companies here in South Africa, I'm sure that you are aware that there are indeed various paths that uh, countries have taken to achieve universal health coverage. In South Africa, <clears throat> sorry, government has chosen the single payer, single purchaser route with appropriately structured 
processes to yield benefits from monopsony purchasing power. The National Health Bill contains elements to address challenges that plug the current health system and prevents a majority of our people from accessing needed care. Why does this seem incongruent with the American Chamber of Commons position? Then my next question, Honorable Chairperson, is uh, um, we are made to believe that most of uh, AMCHEM members are against the introduction of policies that aim to remove uh, perversities in the sale of medicines in South Africa. In particular here, I'm referring to section 18A of the Medicines and Related Substance Act. Now, my question is, would AMCHEM members continue to hold this uh, policy position in a national health insurance environment? Then my last question, Honorable Chairperson, can AMCHEM provide some clarity as to how it believes that the National Health Insurance Bill in its current form will negatively and or positively impact AMCHEM members? Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you for the presentation to the presenters. Uh, you made a point that a competitive healthcare sector is critical for South Africa. Are you aware that the current private healthcare sector should be competitive, but the health market inquiry found evidence of several market failures? From supply-induced demand, unfair competition, market concentration, conflict of interest, governance failures, shrinking healthcare covers, leading to members running out of benefits and limited empowerment of users to hold the medical scheme board members to account. Are you also aware that the investigations by the South African Human Rights Commission and the Council for Medical Schemes on issues related to discrimination, fraud, waste and abuse in the industry? Does this not demonstrate challenges in this sector? And would the country be able to move towards universal health coverage with this model of fragmented healthcare financing? Now, the second question is based on your recommendation of uh, incorporating the entire health infrastructure in South Africa. And uh, it is acknowledged and it is welcomed. But if you read the bill carefully, you will realize that private sector providers have been extensively included in the delivery of healthcare services. For example, section 37, subsection two states that the contracting unit for primary healthcare will be compromised of a district hospital, clinics, or community health centers and ward-based outreach teams and private providers organized in horizontal networks within a specified geographical sub-district area. And section 57 talks about selective contracting with the private health providers. Now, as MCHAM, you're also proposing in slide 15 that provision 
uh, of healthcare services uh, funded by the NHI and the NHI fund should be subjected to normal market forces by subjecting those to competition and by leading section 3 subsection 5. I wish to put it to you that the health market inquiry has clearly articulated that there has been market failure and it will be dangerous to allow the market to exert its influence unabated. Based on these findings, government has proposed that health be regarded as a public good and not be subjected to the whims of the market. And I'd like to get a comment from you on this. And on slide 12, you've raised concern about section 6, 8 and 33 through mandatory participation in the NHI. And I want to put to you that being able to choose medical aid cover is not a human right and ignores the limitation of access and choice of the majority of South Africans. In addition, section, section 36 of the Constitution allows for the limitation of rights and the balancing of rights. Example is the right to choose the right to choose uh, the, the right of life and the right of access to healthcare for all as per the preamble of the Constitution. I also want to put to you that the Constitutional Court jurisprudence has been clear on when dealing with socioeconomic rights and the judgments have been anti-poverty or pro-poor. And also your comment on that would be uh, valued. And then last, well, not lastly, I have a number still chair with your indulgence. You also speak about your concern that the Bulge doesn't allow for or encourage innovation and competition. You also mentioned that you support the concept of fair, equitable healthcare for all as contained in the NHI bill. Do you not feel that sections 26, 27, 35 and 38 will allow for inclusion of stakeholders as well as encourage innovation around existing as well as the introduction of new products into the market resulting in reasonable and affordable pricing of a variety of products that the fund will procure? Now, the NHI, as per the drought bill, is a single-payer unitary healthcare system. And uh, the question is, does it pose a challenge for yourselves in that it may seem as non-competitive? Uh, and if it, uh, if it is a problem, if you can maybe uh, provide us with some detail with regards to that. Uh, also, that uh, you believe that one of the intentions of the NHI bill is to limit the rights of consumers to self-fund in an NHI environment. Uh, I'm not aware of any section of the bill where this is uh, put in, in the bill. And what amendments would you propose for Chapter 5 of the Constitution to reduce the role of the minister? Thank you very much, Chair. Those are all of my questions. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to Amcham for your presentation. I have a couple of questions. Um, first of all, and, and we understand that the South Africa is very, very challenged at the moment. Um, particularly, we've been affected by COVID and corruption and looting and rioting. So, my my question is, you know, with the lack of growth and GDP, how will this affected? How will this affect the NHI? And, and I, I asked this specifically because 
the overall cost of the Cuban health system sits at 13% of GDP. And I think the current situation, if we were faced with that in South Africa, um, would give us a huge problem with regards to NHI. So I'd like your comments on that. Secondly, if SA or South Africa cannot raise the dedicated health taxes to the extent of 2.9% of GDP to actually fund the NHI, what do you believe will happen to, to the NHI? Um, do you believe that it will actually fail um, and will health regress? With regards to the role of the minister and the board, suggestions have been made that, um, that number one, that the minister cannot have sole power over the NHI, um, but amongst the suggestions we received that the election of the board to oversee the NHI um, and various entities thereafter must be the role of parliament and that they must actually report directly to parliament where they can be a um, held accountable and, if necessary, brought, be brought before the the special accounts, the SCOPA, um, uh, to, to account for, for any uh, mismanagement or that kind of thing. Um, and lastly, um, as the American Chamber of Commerce, can you give us some idea of exactly to what extent yourselves and those people related to the American Chamber of Commerce contribute to the health sector um, and in, in, what, in what's the biggest areas in which they, they, they contribute to the health sector in South Africa. Thank you. Honorable Dr. Harvard. Uh, thank you, Honorable. Uh, there's a late uh, hand after Dr. Harvard, I will recognize the Honorable Munyai. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chair, and also thank you for presentation. I just have one question. You are making an assumption that NHI is going to be an SOE. Section 9 of the NHI bill clarifies the fund will be established as a Schedule 3A which is different from an SOE. I would urge the presenters to familiarize themselves with the difference. Thank you. Honorable Chair, I would want to ask that the organization that presented here, the first question is that the, NS, the NHI as per the draft bill, it's a single-payer unitary healthcare system. Does this pose a problem for AM Chamber? Uh, in that it may be seen as a non-competitive. If it is a problem, please provide some details. The AM uh, Chair seems to believe that none of the intentions of the NHI bill is to limit the rights of the consumer to self-fund in the NHI environment. I'm personally not aware of any section of the bill where this is said in the bill. May I please get some clarity, please, if they may do so. Uh, what amendments uh, would you propose for the chapter five of the constitution to reduce, I think uh, Dr. Jacobs covered this question the powers of the minister. 
I want to understand, um, did they also make some contribution or challenge the, the US healthcare access or Obamacare? If they may provide some details, please. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Munyal, have you finished? I'm done, Honorable Chair. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I have three questions to raise also to the presenters. Uh, let me give the first start. I, I think there's been, I'm just having a question, I think there's been a challenge and maybe a, a misunderstanding with regards to what they call as power, separation of powers uh, in terms of um, a, a bill or the processes with regards to the judiciary, the executive and, and parliament. But what, what should be then be their point of reference here should be what is in the constitution, mainly uh, section 99 and 114. They talk about the powers of national improvement. Let me just refer to what 99 is saying. 99 is saying a cabinet member may assign any power of functions that is to be exercised or performed in terms of an act of parliament to a member of a provincial executive council or to any municipal council. And then on 114 in the constitution, uh, it talks, it says uh, powers of provincial legislatures. In exercising its legislative powers, a provincial legislature may, and then it gives you consider pass. I mean, so there is something that is, those are the powers that this may be talking to, not uh, unless you are probably raising regarding the constitutional court matter, which maybe also you talk to. But in terms of powers of provinces and the national, there is a, a, a clear guide there on section 99 and 114. Just on that, on the issues of the constitutionality, when we started this process, uh, we invited uh, a state law advisor to come in and give us to say, will this bill pass the test of time? And so they shared with us in that regard. I would imagine if there's still going to be issues regarding that part, uh, it, the American Chamber of Commerce can still engage the Department of Health in that regard. But I also want to check, you'll respond to me, whether you are not part, uh, we are not represented in NEDLEC, uh, because there are certain members of NEDLEC who came here and made presentations, uh, and they did, they did have their views, but uh, you could see that they are coming in from at least one uh, discussion uh, area point, but they did not raise any constitutionality on the main issues of the bill. The other part, uh, this bill talks about the pricing committee uh, that would be envisaged to be there. But I do pick up that, uh, let me just check. I do pick up that uh, there is an issue that you are raising uh, in one of your slides with regards to that. And I wanted to check um, because one understands that government makes very transparent policies uh, on the issues of pricing of medicines as one of the cornerstones of the single exit price. Now, you are having a presentation that seems to be suggestive, suggestive that this is not the right way to have a transparency on the pricing uh, of uh, medicines. Now, the single uh, exit price, 
uh, according to is not ideal for the South African system. Uh, I, I, I wanted just to find out, I, don't, I did not misrepresent you. I heard you well uh, when you were saying that part. Now, uh, the last one, the health market inquiry recommendations. You will have to assist me here. My understanding was that they are not meant for one or the other. They were meant for both private and public health sector. And uh, in the universal health coverage there, the, the story is that it seeks to actually do a financial protection uh, of all of the citizens of our country, including the one that I made reference to, including that um, 24-year-old single mom who works in one of your McDonald's shops. Now, I, I wanted to check uh, the challenges that you do face in regards to that. I'm asking because universal coverage seeks to ensure that financial protection of all of us, uh, not just one sector. Uh, is my understanding uh, similar to yours, or maybe you have a different view? Please assist us with the comments to these questions. Thank you. Honorable Jacobs, what is a new hand now? Yes, thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you that you're taking my hand. Can I just do a quick two follow-up questions, please, Chair? Okay, two there, two there. Uh, thank you, and uh, the first one is about the, about the process after policy decision is adopted at Parliament level, just to inform that implementation of such a policy that then gets delegated to the executive authority, such as the Department of Health under the leadership of the minister. And uh, it seems like AmCham is is against this approach where policy implementation should then be at the level of the minister and his team, if they can clarify that question. Then you've spoken about a particular point, Chair, that I maybe want to also just talk about, and there are specific concerns that they have with regarding to the single exit price type model in the draft NHI bill. And then very largely um, is, a, is, a, is a question about whether if the NHI should be implemented in the current form as contained within the bill, the US companies that they represent will withdraw the investment in health. Uh, is that an ethical position to take? And uh, how they re- reacted in other contexts um, that have implemented single purchase models. Thank you, Chair. Can we then get responses on this and then we'll take it from there? Uh, Honorable Munai and Honorable uh, Dr. Jacobs, now please lower your hands so that I know that these are not new hands. Thank you. Chair? Honorable Chair? Hello? Uh, There's just one segment less than a second, which, if you allow me... Okay. ...is to also to compliment Dr. Jacob's question. Have they seen disinvestment of these companies from the countries? Uh, as a consequences of this policy introduction, NHI policy introduction. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you.
I'm done, Honorable Chair. Thank you. Can I request the presenters, please? Uh, let me just check how much time to pre- to make their remarks not longer than up to before half past one, please. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you for affording us the opportunity. I think many of the questions that were put to us um, are, are really require clarity about our position in the presentation. Um, the, 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 the presentation was substantial and uh, it may have not come across clearly. So I will start the process uh, of uh, bringing clarity to our position and then our colleagues will join us, uh, will join me um, as they see appropriate to contribute to various areas. Uh, and if we've missed any questions, please uh, remind us of those that you wish to still be answered. The um, So starting with uh, the, the issue of fair competition, um, the, the key area of competition for us is in terms of supplying the NHI. This matter came up many times in, in through many questions, um, and we are looking at a competitive space for those who are supporting the NHI. So as uh, our CEO indicated earlier, there are many pharmaceutical companies that are members of the, uh, of the American Chamber, and we want to ensure that the process of procurement for the NHI supports the viability and the sustainability of enterprises that seek to continue to uh, prov- to make a, a contribution to healthcare in South Africa. Uh, when it, where it relates to um, depletion, there was a question relating to the depletion of healthcare uh, service provision. Uh, we, d- we did not intend for that to be suggested. Uh, what we were concerned about is a reduced role for players within the healthcare space. Um, and this would have consequences if there's a reduced role in terms of the competitive space again, and it would have consequences in terms of security of supply and in terms of patient access uh, to affordable uh, uh, therapies, affordable treatments, and uh, not, in our view, not be in the interest of ideal patient outcomes uh, if we had to have a reduced uh, role for players in the sector. Um, so we did not uh, suggest a, a depletion. Uh, please take that as a correction from our side. Uh, we have, we, in terms of uncertainty in the environment, we've addressed through our comments many areas in which we believe specifics are required. Uh, we understand that the process of crafting uh, a, a bull of this magnitude is complex. And again, we offer our participation, our support uh, in terms of trying to address the specifics. And while specifics may not be evident at this stage of the process, we believe that this is an opportunity to ensure that those specifics are developed in a multi-stakeholder manner and that as many views as possible are incorporated in the next stage of development of the book. Um, in terms of the um, the limitation of rights uh, that that, uh, that that members questioned. Um, the reason why we see that there, there could conceivably be a limitation of rights for patients is because that because of the consolidation that the NHI brings about. If we develop the NHI in a manner and form 
that allows competitive access and allows for a sustainable role for the private sector, uh, a complementary role as is suggested in the bill, but one that is clear and specific so that patients know what they're receiving within the NHI and what they can access outside of the NHI, then we believe that uh, th this could be a viable environment for all play players and in the best interests of ideal patient outcomes. We have, uh, we have uh, I want to also be clear that we support the NHI, um, and we've said this repeatedly in the presentation. Uh, ours today was to demonstrate our support for the, the, the proposals relating to an NHI, but to identify areas in which we believe uh, development, further development is required. And, and again, to emphasize that we want to partner towards those developments. So I, I want to emphasize that we are not against the NHI um, as the American Chamber in South Africa. Um, we believe uh, there was also a question around uh, how the NHI could negatively impact uh, AmCham members. There are multiple levels to potential negative impact, but we believe that at this stage of consultation, uh, potential negative impacts could be mitigated. So the first area of potential impact is in terms of how employers engage with healthcare on behalf of their employees, uh, the current medical aid uh, system that's in place. So we're not advocating that uh, the, the NHI could be detrimental to, to this, but we're suggesting that we proceed with the design of the NHI in a manner that supports the benefits that employees receive uh, in terms of how the employers engage with the NHI. Secondly, we're concerned about the, the number of members of uh, the American Chamber that do provide healthcare in, or could do, uh, do, sorry, uh, do participate in the healthcare space at various levels. Uh, and as we have seen in, in the COVID example, many of them have brought innovations to South African shores to the benefit of uh, all South Africans. And we want that to continue to be the case. So again, this, this is where competition is important. And we believe that it's an interest of all South Africans to ensure that the NHI uh, procures from a broad pool of suppliers and uh, that competition is maintained in that space so that we are assured of security of supply for South African patients. Um, I think let's hand yes. over to David. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Marin. And thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, as well as the members of the committee for for those various questions, um, I come I come at this as a as a lawyer with some some legal views. So I, I will confine my comments uh, in that regard. Um, I think I think the one that I should address uh, firstly is um, I don't it doesn't appear that there are requirements for amendments to Chapter Five of the Constitution regarding ministerial. Uh, powers. Um, 
because Chapter 5 does provide, um, I was just checking your Section 92, which empowers the president to assign functions to various cabinet members. We obviously have a constellation of, of departments and members with, with, with defined responsibility, but that does not mean that that constellation cannot be tweaked as necessary. Um, in our view, it empowers uh, what we propose. Um, and also the, uh, the Treasury regulations in the context of the PFMA, which obviously covers the, uh, the Section 3A institution, um, also allow the Minister of Finance to make regulations to enhance public entities' feasibility and operations. So we don't think that any of the suggestions we've made regarding, uh, let's call it bespoke uh, governance arrangements, are... Um, uh, let's say, surprising in the context of the extraordinary nature and scale of this entity. And uh, we also respectfully of the, are of the view that we need not default uh, as a society uh, to doing things uh, the, way they, the way they're always done, as long as we're not breaking any rules and proposing a different way of doing it, which we, which we sincerely don't believe we are. This is something that, that needs to work for for the people of South Africa, uh, and our, our comments this, uh, in this regard are made are made sincerely, looking at, at innovative ways uh, to 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 address the governance uh, and the proper functioning of the scheme. Um, so the question of policy delegation uh, and implementation um, from the ministerial level, we also think is 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 probably not as uh, a concern that that needs to. Uh, that, that needs to sort of stop things in their tracks. Um, the concern uh, here, uh, as far as the relationship between Parliament and, uh, and the government go, is that the, there, there is a lot that we've said which is not very clearly expressed as policy in the bill. So again, to reiterate the point that universal health care is supported, uh, if and to the extent that there's a role that, that the members of the American Chamber of Commerce can play in, in, in realizing it uh, in its fullness, uh, we're there. Um, but besides the creation of the fund per se, uh, in terms of the current bill, so the bill as opposed to UHC as, as a concept, the, the, the bill says we're going to create a fund and then gives a whole bunch of very um, uh, broad uh, implementation discretions to, to the minister, uh, to the ministry, to the department. And in our view, it, it is not uncontroversial from a, from a legislative uh, uh, perspective to, to give quite directed and focused uh, parameters for the exercise of ministerial discretion, rather than to say there is a white paper Here's a bill that opens the door, and from, from now on, the minister can, can, can make law. Uh, we feel that there is enough evidence-based uh, research uh, and, and exercises that were referenced by, by, by Mr. Rao, for example, around the health market inquiry, low-cost benefit options, uh, the development of the, of the prescribed minimum benefits, um, even in Section 5.2 of the explanatory memorandum to this bill, it talks about, it, it contemplates a shifting a comprehensive package which talks to the phased implementation. These are all things that can be drawn upon in a collaborative process 
in order to determine what it is that the that the minister can can exercise executive power and regulatory power in respect of rather than to have too blanket an approach which then ultimately becomes almost impossible uh, for for parliament to overview or to exercise oversight over because the minister has virtually unfettered uh, un, unfettered powers um i I, we appreciate that the reason is to give the minister as much um, you know, leeway as possible, but, but we're not sure that, that that's always uh, the right thing uh, in these circumstances. Um, the last point that I just wanted to raise, and just excuse my uh, timing. Um, yeah, on, that, on the comment I made now, for example, referencing the, the health market inquiry, it is, it is not suggested that there are not... Uh, critiques in the health market inquiry of the of the private health funding sector, uh, and without commenting on on those in in any detail, that is entirely acknowledged. But the 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 function of the health market inquiry and the the relevance of the report that emanated from that inquiry has given a blueprint for a lot of uh, reform, and it may well be that that some of the answers to a more equalised access to, to, to the sort of comprehensive package that is required lie in the implementation of some of those proposals. Now, those proposals aren't referenced. Uh, the American Chamber is not saying that all of the proposals that relate to the private sector will be ignored and we're going to hold the government to account for the proposals that relate to the, uh, to the state side. Um, we're saying that there are proposals in there which can be used as a framework for packaging the, the phased implementation. And when we talk about phased implementation, I'll finish on this point, um, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, the, the point there is that Section 57, um, it's, it, it's not inherently problematic. It, it provides for a number of very valuable inputs in the sense of these are things that the minister can do. But basically, it gives the minister powers uh, to, at his or her discretion, to, to create a whole bunch of committees. Um, so the phased implement, implementation talks about things that the minister can do, but it doesn't talk about outcomes. Now, the, the outcomes should surely be something that is quite important uh, to be set out in the, in the framework that the bill uh, sets out, rather than to say the minister is empowered to, to, to create a whole bunch of committees. Um, but what are the outcomes that are sought in the bill? The only real clear explanation of that is, is the, the achievement of universal health care, which itself is not defined. And then when we talk about the question of fully implemented, how do we measure what full implementation is if, if we haven't defined what it is? So it comes to the question of the ministerial power. It gives the minister, um, Section 33 gives the minister the power to declare that full implementation has happened. That is, a, is an extraordinarily broad power, given that the minister could feasibly decide in six months or in six years or, or, in, or in some longer period uh, that full implementation has, has occurred and declare that uh, in the Government Gazette um, without there being a measure established in the bill for such declaration. Um, so I, I hope I've addressed um, uh, on a consolidated fashion um, some of the members' concerns. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Is there is there any other leader who wants to comment or all the 
responses have been given. Chair, if I may, through you, um, there was just one um, point, one more point I wanted to raise, particularly on the question of um, elusive to investment. That's one question that was raised in country. Um, they look at it holistically, and and particularly the governance in the country, the level of taxation, um, issues around competition, and then issues around uh, return on that investment. And we were just saying that given the collective nature of the concerns or point of principles that we've raised, which touch on all those four. We were therefore, depending on how those four are responded to, it may be conducive or maybe not conducive. Um, as you, you you'll appreciate, we've raised how, how this touches on governance and and on on investment. That tip about investment going forward. I think, as uh, we've said and mentioned repeatedly. To your example around the the worker who grills beggars at one of our member um, stores at McDonald's, for example, to say, are we equally concerned about that member? Absolutely, and it is why we said for self care roll out. We saw that because it will benefit that member as well. Um, we were just a lot more favorable. Uh, okay. It's very difficult to tell whether uh, I'm the only one who's getting cut off from Mr. Nimpini Mabunda or... No, no, Chair, you're not the only one. Uh, unfortunately, um, his line is not the greatest, so apologies for that, Chair. Okay. Yeah, so maybe, ch- maybe, yeah just maybe. in the interest of time... Um, Yes, Chair. I was going to give you anyone of you would like to make concluding remarks. Chair, before we go into the concluding remarks, there were there were quite a few additional questions that um, we would like to get to. But in the interest of time, um, just before we do the concluding remarks, Chair, with your indulgence, um, just to answer the Honourable Harvard's question around our understanding of a Schedule 3A entity, we, weren't, we, were not, we were not suggesting that at all. We, in fact, we were just utilising the SOE example as um, something to be uh, mindful of as we continue with the construction of um, this, this 3A entity. So, so we take your point, Honourable Harvard, but we were not saying that um, this model is an SOE. We're saying, let's look at what lessons can be learned and derive from the SOE model so that we don't repeat it under the under the, under this um, opportunity. In terms of the types of members we have, Chair, just um, I think your opening remarks uh, when we introduced the American Chamber of Commerce, um, just um, for, for clarification, is that we are US-based companies operating in South Africa, employing South Africans. So it has a direct impact on us as 
uh, employees also um, uh, uh, of these companies operating in South Africa. Um, your point, Chair, uh, Honourable Dlomo, as it related to our understanding of the MHI and it having a uh, uh, an impact on both the public and private. It's a well-noted point, Chair, and we agree with you. Uh, and what we were suggesting is that we take the recommendations um, uh, as part of what came out of the MHI to in order to foster a, a more positive outcome for, for universal healthcare coverage under the auspices of NHI. So, so we are in agreement with you on that. Uh, the Honourable Evelyn Wilson spoke about, uh, you know, what happens if we don't have the right kind of growth in the country uh, or economic growth and how will it impact M NHI? That is, a, that is our concern. Like many other companies who've, uh, and uh, trade associations and, and uh, institutions that have uh, presented without knowing the full extent of the cost implication, the bill, uh, the money bill, and what it will cost us so that we are sustainable. The minute we introduce this, we want to ensure that it is sustainable for all South Africans to have access at various points, because we are of the view that you want to advance healthcare provision for people from where they currently stand into the future. So it's applicable to all South Africans that this is a sustainable mechanism for the country. And it's not something that will be eroded over time because of a lack of, um, of, of financial sustainability to underpin the bill. And that is a concern we, were, we are merely raising like other uh, um, um, uh, platforms as well. Thank you, Chair. Okay, was that inclusive of your <laughs> closing remarks? I hope so. <laughs> I'm going to hand over now to Angela Russell to do the closing remarks. Um, thank you, Angela, and thank you for your time, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Okay. I'll be very brief. Um, to our honourable members, we would like to thank you very much for the time. As I said initially, you know, we have raised our concerns. We are here to work together with you um, through this journey as we look at universal healthcare um, for all. We thank you for the opportunity and the time. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe this is not the last time we interact with you. Uh, anytime uh, we do have your document, the full document, we will interact with it. And maybe if we need some clarity sticking questions, we'll always email, send you back. As we are completing, as we are going on with this uh, bill, as the portfolio committee members will bring it to some closure someday. And your interaction with us will also be key. Uh, thank you. We are now releasing you. Uh, honorable members, uh, housekeeping rules. We are taking a break, a real decent one. Uh, can you come back at two o'clock for the next meeting? Uh, I, I was introduced to something called Uber Eats uh, by my daughter last week. I don't know whether it will work today. It was, uh, we need to get back at two o'clock for a start of another meeting. Have a good sorry, break. And thanks. Sorry, Chairperson. Thanks, Dr. Tembegwai. Can you please check your uh, WhatsApp? I, I sent you a message and respond on it. Thank you. At the start of a meeting at 2 o'clock? Uh, just read it and uh, maybe you can have a better idea on something else that I requested in, in your inbox. Yeah, but Honorable Tembegwai, I will do that. Now I'm holding on to uh, taking a break of all members in the meeting to say we take no a break at 2 o'clock. I'll, I'll look at it and then revert back to you. Or oh, Thank you. 2 o'clock, Honorable Members. Thank
Recording stopped.